On this week's episode of the We've Seen That Podcast, we watched Snowpiercer. I'm Anthony. And I'm Jim. Cut the music. We're back. Pod number 23. Um, this is Anthony speaking, if you haven't figured that out yet. Scott <laughs> is taking the week off. Poor guy seems a little busy. Um, what do you think, Jim? Should we give him a free pass on this one? Uh, we'll give him a free pass, but I have the solution, honestly. Of the 50,000 people out there listening... <laughs> You just have to find us enough sponsors that we get paid the same amount as Scott makes for his real job for the pod, and he'll never miss another episode. There you go. Then we can all just quit the day jobs. That's true. I mean, I'm kind of just waiting for that, like, you know, hoorah moment. You know, we're 23 in, and like I always say, each one's a milestone. You know, that's my kind of my saying. Um, But yeah, you know, I figured, like, if people were just, you know... Give us a little more shout out. I think fifty thousand people can kind of like quadruple, you know, pretty fast. So oh, yeah. Scott should have no excuse, you know, if he keeps clamoring, you know, Marcus, Marcus, Marcus. You know how he likes to do. <laughs> so, but uh, no, we'll we'll roll along here. Um, Jim, we have a guest, that a gentleman I was introduced to in the previous uh, little rerun here before we started recording. Why don't you tell us who we're we're meeting today? So we have an old friend of Scott and mine. Maybe not old friend. It's not been that long. Uh, He worked with both of us at our previous job uh, in the finance slash accounting sector. His name is AJ. Um, He's big into Marvel movies and kind of poo-poos on all of my love of DC. Um, (laughs) With that, welcome to the pod, AJ. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) We did have we did have like a, a mind melt together the other day though. I, I rewatched bits and pieces of Batman versus Superman, and I actually thought it was a pretty good movie. So that's because uh, it is a good movie. We're gonna <laughs> so, have to re- review it. I, <laughs> so so I don't I don't uh, crap on all of your DC takes, but it is pretty easy too. So it's, well, it's fun. As we've discussed on the pod, they've screwed their shit up so good. <laughs> Did we did we get a chance to talk about the Snyder Cut trailer? Did we do that last week? Did I just it dropped the same day as we recorded, oh. so we haven't discussed it. We can roll right into that a little bit. Um, I hadn't put it on here just because we've talked about the Snyder Cut like a lot. Right. Um, it's supposed to come out to streaming on HBO March eighteenth. Uh, this one's not going to be one of the ones they're releasing in theaters. I believe it's strictly HBO. But we got a new cut of the trailer, and one of the main things that people are all talking about, not black suit Superman, not uh, any of the additional footage too much, it's really about the aspect ratio of the movie. It's 1.33 to 1 instead of what I, or it's a 1.18 to 1, instead of normally for widescreen stuff, it's 1.33 to 1. And I'll be honest, the two blig big black bars at the edges of the screen are super distracting to me once i it's been called out to me yeah i just i don't know i haven't seen the original 
in such a long time, kind of, kind of right when it came out, like on DVD and stuff. I think I watched it once, um, but then I'll have I'll have to go back, I think, and rewatch it and then try to compare once this one drops. I think. Yeah, I think when, when Jim and I were kind of briefly chatting about it, this movie is going to be four plus hours long, right? And, and one of my major criticisms of the original Justice League, the the Josh Whedon version, is that it just there's two they try to pack too much into the the time of the film right so expanding it further getting some of the original scenes the original dialogue i mean i'm pretty hyped about it and i don't get hyped about dc <laughs> often so i am too but i guess the question is like they're explain expanding to four hours and now they're going to shoehorn in a bunch of other junk so maybe it's still going to feel overstuffed you know and that could be the downfall because right. they're talking about introducing I believe there's supposed to be a Martian Manhunter in it who was not in the original. Um, there's obviously a bunch of dark side as we've seen in the trailer, mm-hmm. um, more background to Steppenwolf. So I'm wondering if this is going to be too much. And there's the whole nightmare right. sequence where Jared Leto returns right. as Joker. Yeah. yeah. I, we'll see. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting. Cause I've never, I've never seen anything like this happen before. Like we're basically like a mass group of people kind of almost, they, they'll never admit it, but it feels like they almost forced the hand of this release of this movie that, you know, people thought knew existed, and now it turns out, you know, there is this supercut that he envisioned that we're finally getting. It's just, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see if this leads to anything more like this, you know? Well, and that's kind of what we AJ and I discussed a little bit, too, is, like, so this nightmare sequence where Batman's in the trench coat with Joker, and the world is kind of in ruins... Uh, is supposedly like five years in the future of the events of the movie. It's a flash forward or like a premonition of sorts, right? Uh, So the discussion is whether or not that sets up the Flash movie, where Flash then runs so fast that he goes back in time to fix the fact that the Justice League couldn't win uh, and Mm. beat Darkseid and Steppenwolf. What's wild, like you said, is will this version set up something that the movie that was released never intended to set up because the flash movie has been in development hell for like seven years. It feels like they have finally started recording um, after like five different writers and redos of the entire story. So yeah, they're on shaky ice regardless. That is, that's a good point. It's like, which movie becomes like Canon, you know, which one do they use to like, you know, be the next step in the story or which one's like recognized as the real version, you know, it's going to be just bizarre. It's just, it's fascinating to me, honestly. I'm just curious as to see how, how they do it and how good or how much better people seem to like this one. You know, it'll be, it'll be interesting. Um, they should, they should, the, in the flash, right. That obviously he has, if, if they're they time back to the comments, right. The ability to, to trap pass through time, Maybe they're just planning on setting up his movie to wipe everything off, create a new timeline, and start from scratch. Maybe that's the best hope for, for them. <laughs> what do you um, think, Jim? I I think they really do need to start over. And if that's what they do, I think that this is a decent in-universe way to do it. One other exciting thing just related to the Flash uh, movie. Uh, they announced that they have cast uh, Young and the Restless star Sasha Kaye, or Kale, I'm not sure which, uh, to play Supergirl, who will be appearing in the Flash mm. movie. Mm. Um, she's got the look, I think. Uh, she has dark hair, so I'm wondering if they'll dye it blonde, because Kara Zor-El, I believe is her name, is stereotypically blonde. Uh, 
but she certainly has the look. And it makes me very excited because Supergirl is one of the characters that's not touched on much in uh, media, and I think she's really cool because uh, she was launched off of Krypton as an adult, right? She's, mm-hmm. in Krypton time, she's older than Kal-El or Superman. I forget what the, she got trapped in the Phantom Zone is what it is, on her way to Earth, that that's why she didn't age anymore. So she's like 18, Whereas Superman, by the time you meet him, is like 40 years old, right? Even though Kryptonians mm-hmm. don't age the same way as us because of the red sun or yellow sun. I forget which. But, you know, that's beside the point. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Kudos to DC over over Marvel. Is just their, their willingness to obviously put female leads forward, right? Obviously bringing in another character like Supergirl. Again, kudos to them because Marvel doesn't have, I don't think, any movies with a female leave other than Captain Marvel, which again, it's not a very good movie. Some, yeah, some people call yeah. it a swing and miss. Yeah. Some people call it, you know, uh, you know, it didn't meet expectations. But uh, again, Marvel is not putting out any more uh, female leads as of as of their current one. Right? I know the Black Widow film is kind of out there. Obviously, her her. Her involvement in the current timeline with with the Thanos arc, you know, is is no longer there, right? So it's kind of a dead end road, in my opinion. But at least that's one thing I do give DC props to. Yeah, that's something yeah, I so. I guess I didn't even really think of because it is just Captain Marvel, and for all accounts, the first Wonder Woman movie was good. Was I really enjoyed it. Or two. Yeah, and like for right. the first major, you know, female role in like a superhero movie, I think that was done extremely well. We We've obviously discussed the second one from here, but um, but yeah, I mean, at least they have that, you know, kind of, they can hang their hat on a little bit, but yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, I think more and more characters in both DC and Marvel are going to start popping up here because, you know, obviously Marvel's going to be going into their next phase, so it's going to be a lot of, you know, room for new heroes, and I think more room for women superheroes too it'll be it'll be interesting for sure already with that do we want to go into what we're watching i suppose we got a little a little off topic there than normal but i just wanted to touch on that because it did drop right after we recorded i think last week so it's kind of important um perfect well jim why don't you lead us off what are you watching uh this week was a content week for me i see that (laughs) i watched (laughs) Three movies, some of a show, and then obviously WandaVision, which I think all three of us watched, so we'll discuss that at the end. Um, But I watched Return of the King over like three separate days because it was the extended edition. That movie always has been and always will be a 10 out of 10. I fucking love that movie. At the end when uh, Aragorn says, my friends, you bow to no one, it makes me tear up every time. I don't know how Peter Jackson could have royally screwed up the hobbit so well uh but somehow had these this damn near perfect trilogy of movies i just absolutely love it it is it's truly is just a 10 out of 10 i i always fight with myself trying to pick which one um i enjoy the most it's i think it's too hard because it changes i i oftentimes cheat when i make like some sort of top 10 list of movies i just count like the lord of the rings trilogy as one because it's too hard (laughs) for me to just like throw one or two or three in or which one do i leave out so i always cheat and i just count it as like one and put it in my top like two or three every time um yeah it's it's a fantastic movie and it's 
God, I saw that movie like four times in theaters. And even the theatrical cut's like three hours and 38 yeah, minutes long or something. Movie. No. Um, so, yeah, if you can tell, I absolutely love that movie too, Jim. And I think if we can find a way to review a movie that's almost four hours long, we'll try to figure it out and make that it out here. That might have to be a two-part pod. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a load for sure. But, yeah, fantastic movie. Yeah, just the ultimate storytelling film, right? And, like, the first two obviously set it up perfectly. There's aspects in The Return of the King. Even you get some horror aspects, right, with, with the undead, right, the undead army. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, when the, at the time it came out, I, you know, we were younger younger children then, which kind of scary. Like, I remember watching it the first time, just like, this is kind of creepy. Obviously, you have the humor aspects, you know, the, the banter between the characters that you've kind of grown with and, and developed an attachment to. So, yeah, it's it's perfect, right? And 10 out of 10 in my book as well. Can't can't say enough good things about it. But, yeah, to your point, kind of long. Probably do a, a recap without splitting <laughs> it. might be a chore, yeah. <laughs> One thing I know that I notice more on rewatches as an adult now, I'll say. it does. I don't feel like an adult, but somehow I am. Um, is a lot of the love story between Aragorn and Ar- Arwen, even though they're not on screen a lot together, they do have a really deep story there, as well as, um, is her name Eowyn, uh, how she kind of gets the hots for Aragorn a little bit, and he has to put her down easy a little bit. Yeah. Um, but, it, like you said, it's You're a such movie. a romantic, Jim. You're such a romantic. <laughs> <laughs> You're picking up that in your older age. I, well, I mean, I didn't focus on that shit when I was a kid. I was like, oh my god, orcs and people and trolls, and they're fighting. It's great. Right. right. Um, for sure. So yesterday, I double-featured before watching uh, uh, Snowpiercer, that movie that we're actually reviewing today. Um <laughs> And I watched uh, James Bond, Skyfall, and Spectre. They are 9 out of 10 and 7 out of 10, respectively. Uh, you watched them in the correct order, though, right? Correct. I watched Skyfall first. Um, mostly now I'm absolutely caught up on Daniel Craig Bond going into No Time to Die in, like, eight months. So, I mean, really prepared for that. Um, yeah. And I had never actually seen Spectre before, but the intro- uh, introduction of Blofeld was pretty cool. Um have both of you seen Spectre? I have, yep. I saw it yep. once, I think, right away in theaters when it came out, and maybe mm-hmm. maybe once after that. So not in a long time. I just remember thinking, like, Skyfall is a near-perfect movie, in my opinion, too. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah. And then I was so pumped for Spectre, and it just it didn't quite hit the same highs as Skyfall did, but still a, a fun, you know, James Bond movie. I love Daniel Craig, so, like... You know, either two hours of that is a lot better than a lot of things. So, um, yeah, I, well, I would still agree. Good action movies, yeah. Like, even if the story's not as good, it's still a good action movie. For sure, for sure. So I, yeah, I'd probably fall in the realm of those rankings too, Jim. I, I definitely would give Skyfall a nine for sure. Um, and Spectre a little bit lower. I, I agree. The one thing I thought was a little bit weird was at the end of Spectre, he walks off with that Doctor Madeline Swan. And it appears that he's going to quit MI6 again, even though MI6 got combined with MI5 and yada yada, which is the most complex part of the plot. Um, And I'm wondering how they'll bring it back for No Time to Die, because in the trailers we don't see this Madeline Swan lady who appears to be his steady lady friend at the end of the movie. Yeah, 
I almost remember thinking that was one of the things I didn't really care for was how he almost settled down with a woman finally, which has never been Bond's mo. You know, it kind of it kind of just threw off the whole aura to me. But um, I mean, not enough to ruin the movie, but at the same time, I was like, not really what you're expecting, which I guess maybe what they're going for. You know. Yeah, seeing as he is kind of a habitual womanizer, which is one of the most negative characteristics about the (laughs) character, right? Um, But we'll see whether or not it lasts, apparently, in the next one. The last thing I did watch, other than WandaVision, uh, Angie started watching The Great on Hulu, starring Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt, uh, who I immediately recognized as Beast from X-Men First Class. (laughs) Um, And... It's this really interesting dark comedy about Catherine the Great, who married uh, Russian Emperor Peter, and how now she's kind of plotting to kill him. Because it's not necessarily lineal descendants that take on the power. So, like, if he had a um, an illegitimate child, it, the power would actually go to her instead of going to any sort of illegitimate child, is what it sounds like. Um, so, it's just interesting and funny and very tongue-in-cheek. Uh, about these obviously dramatized uh, Russian parties that they were having, but it just seems kind of cool. I've enjoyed it. Angie's now left me behind, so either I'll have to go watch it myself or that's probably all I'll say about it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Nice. Well, what about you, AJ? What did you watch this week other than WandaVision, which we can get to later? Yeah, uh, I have a plethora as well. One, because... I, I should say we watch quite a bit, but we also have kids, right? So it's like a little bit for me, a little bit for the kids, and a little bit for Chelsea is what I'll say. Um, but yeah, outside of WandaVision, actually last night we watched uh, the documentary, The Framing Britney Spears, that's on Hulu. There's just like a ton of hype around it with her conservative ship, with her, fa- her father's conservative ship over her. And uh, the New York Times released like a documentary just kind of on her life and like how the media has really just distorted figure and and how how far we've come and talking about mental illness in the media and with these mega super pop stars right so it's super interesting and, and i mean yeah i'm a big who is not a big britney spears fan that grew up in the 90s i don't right. know if you guys are probably on the tail end of that right i'm a little, probably a little bit older than you so i was like in the in the depths of the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and Britney Spears and, and kind of these ultra pop icons. So we loved it. Um, I, I'd recommend it. You, you learn a little bit about how little of control she has over her actions because of this conservative ship her father has over her and the struggles that she's been trying to get out of for like the past 12 years. Right. So super good. Um, the, the show that we would kind of fall back on now is, is Gilmore Girls. Chelsea's probably seen it. 10 times the entire series but this is my first time through we're in season two the the dialogue and the character development the the, the writing everything is great uh, it's, it's a show that i really throw myself into they are hour-long episodes so we don't get a full hour to just like sit down and, and, and truly binge watch them we might watch an episode a day or maybe four episodes a week or something like that but, um yeah super good and then lastly, February is Toy Story Mania Month for the kids. So typically, <laughs> them watch one movie uh, like on a Sunday or a Saturday. So this month, we're like, hey, let's hammer out these. Let's hammer out the Toy Story 
movies uh our our young our oldest everett has not seen all of them so we watched all of them um number three is still closest to my heart it probably goes like number three is the best and probably one two four in my opinion how did the kids do with the first scene oh everett like he i don't know the kids i don't think he's old enough to really comprehend like these toys may die right so it's like he he thought it was pretty cool the claw came down and like picked them up out of the out of the burner um he was more he was more upset of like Lotso leaving them on the conveyor because like again Lotso appears to maybe flip a switch and and become a little bit grounded in these in these toys and not being such like a in the rear but obviously betrays betrays woody and the gang before they're headed to the burner and he was not too happy about that part but mm-hmm. <laughs> other than that i don't think like there was a doubt in his mind that they were going to get out of it just because of all the other shenanigans that they had been through in the first you know films so yeah um yeah just uh we're, we're going to disney world in this fall so we're trying to get through like relevant disney and pixar films so he has some context when we're physically there so toy story month was in full swing and we finally wrapped it up so if there's one thing about aj it's that him and his wife chelsea may be the biggest disney fans i know um absolutely obsessed with all of it um and if it's too much we can edit it out and post too much information but they actually went to (laughs) disney on their honeymoon which is maybe one of the coolest things i've ever heard of and uh, the actually one of the like local community groups they they just had a uh, Disney trivia like Zoom night so um, there's like 98 people that called in Zoom and we used this other app to do a trivia night we placed fourth out of uh, 98 teams wow so, nice uh, <laughs> Chelsea Everett and I and then Chelsea's mom and my mom were kind of here helping us watch the boys while we were doing it we yeah we placed fourth so. We're, we're not the best, obviously. There's clearly other people that are that are smarter than we are, but uh, just quick <laughs> pretty Googling. damn good. Yeah, yeah right. right. We're, uh, um, we're pretty we're we're pretty into it. So, just the classic Toy Story. I actually rewatched the original not too long ago, um, and didn't really. I don't think I just forgot to maybe bring it up on the pod. But yeah, it just holds up so well. Mm-hmm. I mean, that movie's from 1994 or something. Yeah, 93. It's just like. You know, the animation is great still, and just the voice actors. I mean, you couldn't really – they just – they're iconic, you know, as Buzz. Right. It's just – it is it is just a classic. It's one of my favorite movies of all. I mean, obviously, I've grown out of a lot of things, but I remember that's that right. probably is the movie I watched the most from yeah. the time I was up until, you know, 12 years old or something. It's, it's a great movie yeah. for sure. Chelsea and I were talking too. It's just like we grew up – like we were the same age as Andy throughout the entire – story right like i was exactly his age when the movie came out and i was exactly his age when toy story 3 came out and he went to college right so it's like growing up with these toys as if like again you attach yourselves to them because literally through these emotional periods of your life you see this movie that this child in the film was growing up with you and also the toys associated with them so yeah it's it was good it's good it is awesome already anthony you want to round us out for what we're watching I'll round us out. So, um, the one movie I got down to rewatch just because it was on TV and it was just starting, and it's like to me is one of the the most rewatchable movies probably in the last 
10 years um because it's not too long and if you're just looking for a no-nonsense ass-kicking movie it's john wick Mm -hmm. with keanu reeves um literally like blew me out of the water the first time i saw it because it like i don't know if you remember it didn't really have much hype you know there were some trailers and stuff but it's like one of those movies that definitely like picked up you know after like initial release like word of mouth i think kind of made this now trilogy what it is um and they're they're just good movies they're great action movies keanu reeves is amazing and like all this physical training he actually went through to do his own like stunts and fight scenes like and all that stuff and it's just really well done and like i said there's not much story to that other than you know don't don't kill his dog or something because he might come after you but if you're just looking for like a good movie to watch for like an hour and 40 minutes if you're just chilling and for some good action flick john wick i think is the way to go definitely agree with that i i actually hadn't seen any of them until i picked up um, they were on sale for all three of them. I bought all three of them at once and I marathoned them. And if there's one thing that's true, it's that the first one's the best one, I think. The, the two and three are still great action movies, but the plot is not as compelling as in the first one. Yeah. And they're all still incredibly rewatchable just for the action sequences and some of the uniqueness in the way that John Wick does some of the kills. But yeah. definitely the highlight of the trilogy there. Yeah, that yeah, first one's amazing. Such in-depth world building without extensive dialogue, mm-hmm. right? Like they they create this world of of uh, of you know contract killers without someone sitting there telling you what this world is, right? Just from the, from conversations within the film, from them physically showing you how these gold coins work. Yeah, it's. It was great. Like I, I love John Wick. <laughs> I don't know if there's a fourth one in the mix or, or I what, this, what the case is there. I have but, to uh, assume that they are not letting that die. Right. I'm pretty sure yeah. there for sure is a fourth one in the 2022. Works. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I mean, so. it, that's a great point. It's like this just world of like assassins that they just created with like random safe houses like these continental (laughs) hotels it's like yeah okay i mean and that's i think what part of it makes it so great is like if you were trying to explain this to someone it would probably sound stupid but the way they do it Mm -hmm. you know is just so well done like you just you just buy into it you know without much background to anything anyway and i think that just isn't a tribute to the to how well they created this Mm -hmm. world and like like you said the way they dialogue through the movies and just the simplicity of it too i think is is what makes mm-hmm. it so good but um mm-hmm. cool well i guess this is like become the weekly wandavision wrap-up um any <laughs> major reactions you guys right away man we, we've we, we've all seen episodes you've all seen, you've seen episode seven right jim yeah i've seen i'm caught up completely yep okay okay yeah, Jim's going to go mad, of course, because he doesn't understand the details. So. <laughs> I, I, I don't. So the main point of this entire episode is uh, the hex has been expanded. Darcy Lewis is now inside, along with many other characters that are not important characters. Um, and Vision breaks her out of the spell. And agnes their neighbor i think reveals herself as agatha harkness she's kind of been behind all the bad things or all the weird things happening from the get-go it's not uh not wanda necessarily and i'll be honest i had to google who agatha harkness was um but for for a 
an introduction to her, I felt like it was maybe a little bit weak. Maybe we'll get more backstory next week, which I'm really hoping for because I had no idea what her powers were or any of that. And I, I, I'm assuming AJ was aware, but I'm not sure, Anthony, how much you knew about her. Not, not much. So I'm glad that AJ's here to kind of, because I know Scott would be no help to this either. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was a little surprised. I mean, they kind of, you, you don't really see it coming, I guess. Um, but I'm kind of with you, Jim. I don't really know too much about this character. And then did you guys see the end, like the post credit thing? What? I, Oh, post credits. Oh, there was the credit. first post credit. You're fucking kidding yet. me. This is the only one I didn't fast forward through the goddamn credits. You're kidding me. Oh, and I, <sighs> I'm curious because I don't. I didn't really understand. I don't even. I don't. I should just. Look, I should have just looked it up. I didn't really quite catch what he said to her. Did Who's you, that? AJ? It's just yeah. P- he said yeah. Like, yeah. He said um uh. Something's gonna. He's like peeper's gonna peep or narc's gonna narc or something or um, uh, because snooper's gonna snoop. That's what she. That I think that's what he said. Snooper's gonna snoop, right? Because uh, um, Monica Rambo was kind of looking around uh, Agnes's house, right? And, and she kind of opens up the cellar door, and as she kind of backs away, um, Pietro is is behind her and, and kind of taps her on the shoulder and says, "Snooper's gonna snoop." And then cuts to black. Right? Yeah, so. it wasn't much, Jim. But like, no. but that's that's big because lots of the rumors I've been reading online is that that's not Pietro; it's Mephisto, right? Um, right. Who I'm just I'm assuming is some sort of cosmic being with powers or like magic stuff, right? Because again, right. not my universe, not my characters. Right. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was. I thought it. I thought the episode was great and just gave us a lot of information. I guess like. I don't, I don't want to like differentiate oh hardcore MCU fans versus not like if you're a general fan of the show I love that more people are getting into a side story like WandaVision right and I think they're they're trying to put some pieces that will impact the overall like movie MCU right uh, rather than just have WandaVision be in this standalone uh like series but but yeah like Agnes or Agatha Harkness you know, kind of stepping in the focal point of the villain. One, I was super happy because I was like, I don't think there has been like a female villain outside of Thor Ragnarok, right? Of, of Hela. Uh, Hela. And I just think, again, it just breathes some life into the series that uh, all these different characters and, and having a, a female antagonist uh, is something that I think they needed to be like a focal point of something, especially to like mirror Wanda as a female um, protagonist. So anyways, Agatha Harkness, if you guys, you know, her and Scarlet Witch in the comics kind of always go hand in hand. She is a witch. So like she has dark magic and they have alluded to that obviously in the basement where uh, uh, Wanda goes down the basement. She sees like a bunch of demonic, you know, kind of almost like devil worshiping, um, visuals and obviously the, like the dark book uh, i won't get into too much of that of like how that could impact because it's a lot of just fan theory of what that book is and how it's attached to uh agatha harkness and possibly mephisto but yeah like the other good thing that i liked about this episode is that monica rambo's character she showed a, a little bit of her own superpower 
um, abilities forming, right? So in the, in the previous couple of episodes, it was alluded that she had some, some DNA irregularities or, or modifications. I think this is how they're going to try to set up like the mutant storyline, right? Like her DNA was, was already pre-mutated and her going in and out of this hex has kind of awoken that mutation inside of her DNA. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, and we get to see some of that, right? Like her glowing eyes and, and when her and Wanda kind of have a standoff in the, uh, in the yard, you, you know, she gets knocked back, but is able to kind of brace herself and you kind of see some blue, uh, like uh, some blue energy come out of her fists and her feet to kind of brace herself back on the ground. Um, I think it's, you know, Monica Rambeau's character in the comics, her name is Photon. Um, and, and so I think they're actually going to bring that to the forefront and develop that as, as her kind of being a new uh I think in the, in the comics, Photon's not a mutant, but I think in the MCU's perspective, they're going to basically open up that door saying, you know, she, she had um, some DNA mutation prior to going in and out of the hex, which is why she probably wasn't very uh, surprised to see th- that those types of results come back on her blood work. She kind of shakes that off in a previous episode, like she's not surprised you know, if someone told me I had like uh, some irregular blood mutation, I'd be, I'd be kind of freaking out where she kind of like scrapes it off. So I kind of knew about, hey, her, her blood, her, her DNA is a little bit different, but going in and out of the X's kind of has triggered her powers. I have a so, thought in this yeah. vein. Yeah. She was one of the ones who went away with the snap and got brought back. They call it the blip, mm-hmm. and I think that that's the dumbest name for it ever. Um, <laughs> in the previous X-Men stuff, the previous movies, right? Um, not the first class ones, like the originals. Uh, they kind of talk about how lots and lots and lots of people have a mutation. They just don't know it, or it doesn't present as like a superpower or anything like that. Could they be using the idea that people brought back by the snap came back with something extra um which i think would be pretty pretty cool um one thing that you said to aj that i really like and want to point out is how this is it's focused on wanda and vision but it brings in one or two characters from the outside and this is the most comic booky thing that i think any movie or show has done because there will be like major things happening in a universe right like think about uh endgame that would be like what's called a comic book event and it would span every single comic book series being published whereas Mm -hmm. this is much more like a mini series of like say 10 issues where in one of them pietro shows up and that's like the last panel of a comic and then like you get more of the development or other characters come to visit for a single issue or something and that to me feels super cool and it's part of why i like the show is it feels like i'm reading a comic book on the screen yeah and i I mean kevin feige's got his he doesn't have his hands too heavy into wandavision but i mean he has vision and oversight and and i don't want to say like the last say in in what wandavision has but a a pretty heavy influence on let's just not show for the sake of making a show like let's put something in to connect it to the overall like universe. Right. So that to me is something that I don't think that there, there's not going to be any heavy inconsistencies or, or plot holes when we you know, say, if you don't watch WandaVision at all and you go into Dr. Strange multiverse of madness, I think the general, the general moviegoer will be able to pick up the pieces, but someone who watched WandaVision will watch, you know, the new Doctor Strange movie go, oh, like that kind of makes sense. Now I understand how these things tie in a little bit better 
but they won't be completely lost, right? So you get to understand the development of Wanda and, and Vision and kind of her inner struggle with, with the snap and how she had to deal with things emotionally. But I think once you get back into the the, the movie MCU, I guess so we'll call it rather than the show MCU, you won't miss a beat, right? So I'm excited. Yeah. How many episodes are left? I believe two. Just two? Wow. That's, it's, it's coming fast. It's crazy. Got some loose ends to wrap up. I know. I yeah. feel like there's so much, you know, that they've built up. And who knows? I mean, I'm not saying they aren't going to do a great job. I'm just saying it's like, it sucks that you you already have two episodes left and you kind of want more than with how much, you know, they've brought in. Mm-hmm. And right. I agree with you both. Um, Jim, it's really, that's exactly how I didn't really know how to, like, say it like you did. Because now that makes total sense. Like, this feels much more like a comic book than anything we've we've kind of had before like this this show format has been able to like put you in this sort of different like headspace when you're able to like digest the story and you know move along with the characters it does really feel like you're kind of just flipping the pages of a comic book and to your credit aj too it's like i think that this will they did a great job of kind of connecting this to the overall universe and we'll see kind of the fruits of their labor pan out in neck and like for now movies coming in the future like you said dr strange um yeah i mean so far i think the show has been a success um i mean i had there's been a couple episodes here and there jim obviously has been a little turned off by some but um we'll see how they finish you know i don't know i i've enjoyed it a lot and i'm hoping we kind of get more stories told like this um in this universe i think this is a good format for sure Perfect. Well, Jim, do we have something? Yeah, we do. <laughs> the hype horn. Even with Scott not here, we're still able to pull off some miracles. You know, we have to owe it to them. He did forward it to us, so I'll give him that credit. Um, I'll let you kind of take the reins here since you set this up. I watched one of these trailers. The so, sec- the I did not did see. Watch? I did not watch the Mortal Kombat trailer yet. Oh, because that's the better trailer. That's disappointing. <laughs> well, the Mortal see, Kombat trailer, which is going to premiere on HBO on April 16th, looks fucking sick. I am so excited about this movie. I It, it makes me want to go to the arcade so fucking bad. <laughs> but putting my mitts all over a game that someone else has had their hands all over is a terrible <laughs> idea right now. <laughs> Uh, you get introduced to all the main characters, um, Jax, Kano, Liu Kang, um, uh, Scorpion, Sub-Zero, and I just fucking love it. There's an awesome depiction of what appears to be a fatality from Sub-Zero, and I'm mm-hmm. so glad they did it so fucking sweet. He, like, uh, does he stab Scorpion, I think? Blood comes spurting out, because, of course, this is a Red Band trailer, uh, he freezes the blood, stabs him with that, and throws him into a wall of ice. It's just so fucking cool. I'm losing my so, shit over here. I've always, I've not, I never, to be honest, I really never played much like OG Mortal Kombat. So like they, I know they've made at least, you know, they've made a few movies. Haven't there were they? two of them. Yeah, and I've always heard they're terrible. But I don't really know shit about like any of like the characters and stuff. So to hear from someone that clearly has enjoyed this and thinks the trailer looks pretty badass well now i'm pretty excited i know a little bit the the story around mortal kombat is 
both incredibly loose because it's really just a side-scrolling fighter, right? Right. Uh, but also incredibly complex, like characters that die and then come back as ghosts or like fucking zombie weird things and shit. I don't understand the entire chronology of the games. And to be honest, this story seems like it's going to be separate. Uh, they go into it saying that, and I forget the name of the main guy, but he's got a birthmark on his chest that looks like the Mortal Kombat dragon logo. And that's an invitation from uh, the powers that be to a uh, uh, contest to decide the fate of the world. And that's the main story they're going to go with here. Nice. Yeah. I think what I'm most excited about is what makes Mortal Kombat so appealing, at least from the video game space, is just the pure aggression and pure like creativity of killing mm-hmm. and, and not just away from yeah again like it was is actually one of the first ones that came out right on the super nintendo or whatever had heavy criticisms from parents right because even uh you know like you have scorpion i think or it was at sub-zero ripping out someone's skull and like the spine is zero in in like the in the like way back then right in terrible graphics well obviously that's evolved over time and you just had these crazy fatalities and the movie is i think is embracing that right which i think the first two movies lacked and we got to see a little bit of that in the trailer as jim alluded to so i'm super jacked about it as well because th- this movie is not for a general audience like it there's going to be some parental guidance restrictions on it it's for people you know of our age that grew up with with the game and that are really looking to see some like said some blood and some cool deaths <laughs> awesome with that we'll move into a much tamer trailer which was the cruella trailer uh this is a disney movie obviously but is apparently not going to launch on disney plus they're still planning for a theater release on may 28th um and i can just say that this trailer does absolutely nothing to make me want to see this movie it's like a different version of like a harley quinn origin it's just put off some like really dark like vibes i don't know she's so misunderstood yeah right i mean it has god forbid i cannot think of her name now i love her she's a great emma stone is a great actress like don't get me wrong but like i just i don't know we'll see i didn't know this was a movie that we would ever get so to actually see (laughs) like this sort of trailer come out it's like i guess we i guess we need a cruella background story i don't know anything what I what I it doesn't get me going either. I, what's upsetting is I we've seen this in Maleficent, right? Misunderstood villain, right? Where, which I to your point, Anthony, I think that's what they're trying to do, right? They're they're trying to like bring like oh we should feel bad for Quill and like understand her more. It's like well, she's just not a good like. Can't we just have this villain that's just not a good person? Like I don't understand or care about her underlying motives other than just like she's the bad guy in. 101 Dalmatians. I don't need like her entire backstory of like how she came to like want to kill puppies. So, what do you yeah. think the odds are she gets bit by a Dalmatian in this movie? God, that's pretty high, though, right? right? <laughs> I mean, to get the they showed at least two of them like growling at her immediately, and she walked in that one room. So, I, th- mm-hmm. I don't know. I like I said, I mean, they just come up with movies for everything now. I just feel like there's some can't they just leave like some things alone? Like, I would have never left, like, the original, like, animated or even, like, the live-action movies thinking I need a Cruella, like, origin story. I don't know. That's just me. (laughs) It's like... Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. 
with that, the third and final piece of hype is Tom Holland apparently did an interview that said uh, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are not going to be in Spider-Man Far From Home, or that it's been hidden from him. And to be frank, this sounds a lot like Disney slash Marvel telling him to do something or say something. Because additionally, he's been notorious for leaking things that he's not supposed to say in the past, um, or revealing that he's in certain scenes and things before movies come out, because he can't keep his mouth shut. So, I, I, I'm calling major bullshit. There's been too much announced and released that I think they are doing a live-action Spider-Verse. I, I'm still on board with that. I know, I'm starting to see more and more things where, like, stuff like this comes out where it's like well it's they're not even they're not cast you know but like there's so many people that seem to think that they're just keeping it like a huge secret which this almost to me you know he comes out and says stuff like this like you said jimmy is notorious for like not being able to like keep his mouth shut um so this could be some form of like great marketing or or yeah i mean there could be the reality that it it really isn't going to happen and it was kind of just like a fan you know, a theory that ran wild. Yeah, right. I know. I'm. I'm hoping for the the multiverse. I think that would be really cool. And I think with everything they we've seen on Wandavision, they're starting to like open up that sort of reality. Like we could get something like that, but who knows? We'll see. I mean, I'll be kind of disappointed to be honest if we don't get it. I'm sure the movie will still be good, but now that I've been hyped up so long for this, it's just I I would be very disappointed. Yeah, especially when Jake Gyllenhaal's character kind of teased that, that like he's from this different universe in the last film, right? And then obviously it was uh, a 180 where he was pulling the shades over our eyes for that, what, 10 or 15 minutes of the movie. We're just like, holy crap, they're going to do it, right? They're going to expand this to multi-universes. Like, I wouldn't be totally surprised if this entire new Spider-Man film has nothing to do with the multiverse and somehow at the end... Uh, even if it's a post-credit or whatever, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield come into the picture, right? So maybe not the entire film is is about a multiverse, but somehow at the end, it opens up opens up the floodgates, right? Because, you know, how, how do you top a character like Thanos in the overall MCU arc, right? We've already talked about this universe and the high stakes of half the population, like how do you how do you one up that right? It, it, they they can't just put another being in place, another villain place who is also then going to attack the same universe. Like the stakes have to be somehow be higher for the next thirty five films, right? Like something Even has to come decade in. So of build up. that's what I'm saying. Like something has to happen where the multiverse is appeared, and again, you you get one like Kang the Conqueror, who again is able to travel between universes that is somehow the, the major threat right so i yeah. think i think i think they're gonna do it I, I agree i think tom holland is just spewing this because people are like oh he always is the person to spoil these these movies. i think they're using that to their advantage now from a marketing perspective and he's just blowing smoke right yeah hopefully With that we have scott calling in <laughs> now you guys won't be able to talk to him, of course, but I can relay messages. Hello. Hi, Scott. You're on the pod. How does it feel? Oh my God, I'm on the 
I'm on the phone with the greatest movie podcast in the world. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> yeah, what we're saying. That's exactly what we're saying. Oh my god! How, how, how are the boys doing today? Oh, dude, they're living the dream, man. They're again. Yes. They're actually on the greatest movie podcast this week. Oh, Some people are just calling oh. in via phone. Oh yeah. Well, um, I basically called uh, for one one reason and one reason only. I want to tell all the listeners that I love them. <laughs> they miss you, man. That was it. That was all I had. Um, have, a, have a bang up pod, and I'll, I'll return at some point. That probably will be next week, but I'm not going to make any promises. Dude, next week is Judas and the Black Messiah. Spoilers for the end of the episode. You got to hmm. be back. Well, I already spoiled that last episode, actually, didn't I? Yeah, you did. I know. I'm just saying, you got to come okay. back. It's going to be a good one. Uh, uh, one thing I did want to ask is um, did we talk about WandaVision? We did talk about WandaVision. Do you have any thoughts? Okay, all right. Are you still mad at it, Jim, or what? I just thought it was meh. Anthony asked if you have any thoughts, so if you want to give us anything super quick. Okay, so I was able to watch that last night at about 11.30 when I got home from work. So I'm going to be honest, I don't even uh, really remember anything besides that she, that one lady walked through the wall, and that was pretty cool. Um, oh, Monica so, walked through the, the edge of the thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool. And, and then... Um, um, this is all going to tie back to Doctor Strange, probably. That's that's what I think is going to happen. AJ is furiously so, nodding his head. Yeah, it, I mean it's it's clear it's clearly meant for some sort of connection to Doctor Strange, with since there's going to be multiple. It's called the multiverse or something, right? The multiverse of madness. Yeah, so that's that's clearly what's going on here. One of these characters is probably going to be involved in the movie. Maybe the kids. I don't really know, but. Um, Okay, well, I won't take much more of your time. AJ, uh, do a great job. Uh, I'm sorry I couldn't make the pod, but I have full faith that you're giving us great content. Dude, get all the stuff try. done so you can join us. You were going to say, try. okay? I say, try my best to fill your shoes he here. He said he's going to try his best to fill your <laughs> shoes. Oh, I'm, it, it shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> we'll catch you later, man. All right, bye, guys. Bye. Surprise reappearance from... One of the actual hosts of the pod, Conan yep. via phone. Gotta love man. that, man. The commitment to the craft. I guess so. I mean, Jim, what, you're the only one that hasn't missed. No, I did miss. Uh, you oh. and I both, both missed the Silver Linings Playbook episode. That's right. Yeah. Scott so did every, it with the guest. Everyone's been a loser and skipped at least once. Yep, yep. Wow. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if you can just have a little quick call, you know, we can uh, we can plug Scott in there anytime. Um, yeah, he better be back. You know, I don't want to. I don't like this. You know, he's already calling a shot for next week. Maybe. Come on. <laughs> That'd be bad. <laughs> Come on. Um, I mean, it is literally going to be like March first, isn't it? It is. Or it'll be the yeah the twenty eighth. That's bad right. news. Yeah. For he, sure. ain't, he ain't showing. He ain't showing. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Well, I guess with that, we'll dive into kind of why we're all here. Um, Snowpiercer. Jim, why don't you give us a rundown on the movie? Alrighty. Snowpiercer was originally released in 2013. Um, It's currently available to stream on Netflix. It was directed and the screenplay was written by Bong Joon-ho, which is uh, of Parasite fame that won the Best Picture this past year. Starring Chris Evans, Kang Ho Song, Ed Harris, John Hurt, Tilda Swinton, Jamie Bell, uh, Octavia Spencer, and Ko Asung. Uh, sorry, that's a lot of people, but they all play relatively major roles in the uh, in the story here. Mm-hmm. 
And this is we, we should change your name to the Ed Harris podcast. You got no, two for I two. I know two in a row. <laughs> Harris, I was thinking right? the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot he was in this until we and got very. To the end. And if you think about it, somewhat similar roles for Ed Harris. I don't want to spoil too yes, much absolutely. on this, but we get right. towards the end. It's right. like Sky just likes to you know be in control. I think, but um, he's yeah. I guess I think. AJ, for the first time on guest review, is going to has volunteered to kind of run the show here through the rundown. Mm-hmm. Um, I got I, I'd leave it to him. He sounds like he loves this movie, and it's a fantastic film. I can't wait to discuss it. So, with that said, I mean, let's dive in, bud. Yeah, I think I I, I love this movie off the bat, but rewatching it again here there are some my, my troll hat kind of my internet troll hat came out I'm like ah maybe there are some like flaws to this film I, I remember watching it at the first couple times like this is the perfect film and then re-watching it and actually kind of dissecting it scene by scene for the pod I was like oh like there are some some things that don't make sense but maybe we can talk about them as we walk through what, one last thing about like the overview it this bu- movie's budget was like 40 million uh, and it did terribly, in, t- terrible in the U.S. But worldwide, it did it did uh, gross eighty seven mil. So so profitable from a worldwide perspective, which isn't shocking, right? Given the sci fi nature of it, obviously Bong Joon Ho's like celebrity, we'll call him outside of the U.S. at this point in time in twenty thirteen. Uh, so, but, but in the U.S.'s perspective, it's considered like a major flop. I think it was only like five or ten mil or something that it, wow. it collected. So. I think it's it is, it, yeah or sorry I just think it definitely has gained notoriety through yeah. the streaming like it's been on Netflix right. forever and mm-hmm. so right. I think I that's where I first yeah you know, I literally think the first time I saw this movie um, was like when I was just like on Facebook and you always get those things it's like oh top ten unknown <laughs> movies on Netflix or something and this was like one right. of them and I like checked it out I'm like this is actually a pretty good movie yeah. so because yeah. I think yeah. I wanted to say did. Was this his first American language film? Speaking, yeah. yes, yes, it so, was. Yeah, so yeah, yeah the host was before this. I think he, the host came out before, but that's not English speaking. So that I think he got like American recognition for that of like, hey, this host is is, is kind of along the same lines of this socioeconomic, uh, you know, uh, more so even like, uh, you know, I don't want to say like global warming, but but at least. Uh, mankind's impact on nature right so this came after the host yeah first english speaking for for bong joon ho here Uh, it it is actually based on a like a french graphic novel as well right so this isn't like his original concept but it definitely has his flavor of uh, of critique on on social economics uh as we can kind of get into so a setup is we you know we, we open open the movie and there is a little bit of information spewing right off the bat right so in 2014 uh global warming or i should say climate change right it is kind of a a hot topic and the temperature of the earth is is rising too rapidly and so uh the world uh is kind of working together and they develop what's called cw7 which is a man-made chemical that's going to be used to lower the temperatures earth Right. And so it, the CW7 is released and it actually cools the earth down too rapidly and too heavily and actually creates a permanent ice age. Okay. 
Uh, all life was extinct except for everyone aboard Snowpiercer, which is a 1001 car train passenger that circumvents the globe that we later learn was developed and is uh, conducted by Wilford, who is played by Ed Harris. And so late, like w- later in the movie, we, we come to find out that this train was actually built to be like a luxury passenger car to travel the world. And then obviously as CW7's release, uh, Wilford develops into like a self-sustaining train model to, to save mankind. So that's kind of the, the prerequisite of, um, of how Snowpiercer or how these people got into this train is, is because of climate change. Like the first actual scene we get, I don't know. Do you guys want to comment on on how how we start before we we dive into the actual action component of it? I kind of was just going to ask how you guys like when do you guys like when movies kind of open up with some sort of like new like they had that half ass like newsreel like you mentioned where you know it's like news stories of breaking about climate change and then they talk about the release of the. The CW7, and then they kind of, we get, like, then there's the shots of, like, the airplanes flying over, like, we're assuming yeah, it's dropping that into the atmosphere. I mm-hmm. I think that works here really well, just because, you know, you don't know how to really start this movie other than probably just being right on the train. So, I think opening with that kind of, you know, allows you the freedom to kind of jump right in without having to, you know, spend too much time, you know, going into like everything that happened prior. So Mm -hmm. I think it's hit or miss. Like this avoids a huge dialogue dump, which we said is one of the good things about John Wick is they don't expand the universe via dialogue. Um, However, I do believe it's a little bit of a cop out. It's not the best movie making trick in the world because it's stupid, but I didn't come here to read. Um, right. However, I do that at the beginning of every Star Wars and absolutely love it. So I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think it works here. I think in many other movies it doesn't. Yeah. True. And yeah, in in me saying that Wilford again, this, this was a luxury train. We kind of le- learn that later in the movie. So I think the amount of information we're given up front is just the right amount. Maybe it's pushing the line of too much. Uh, but there is some like is some questions that the that you have just rereading reading this and all of a sudden you're on this train in the back of the train with these passengers you do have some questions of just like okay we need to fill in some blanks that i think is done along the movie so um again probably borderlining on maybe too much but just enough to get us interested and really set the tone of of where we open um so so with that the we pick up 17 years later after uh the ice age right after cw7 so the years 2031 and in this kind of dark train car uh with with uh, again individuals that are dirty and, and probably smelly uh and these enter the train car uh for, and, and start counting passengers heads and as rows are counted, they're supposed to sit down. And when it gets to Curtis's row, who's played by Chris Evans, um, he does not sit, right? And uh, again, right away where he's kind of the leader of this gang, uh, we see that right off the bat. And what he's truly doing is he's kind of looking down the open ends of the train cars, uh, counting dark. 
guards as well to make sure he understands how many guards there are, where they're positioned, and what the train cards ahead of them hold. And right away, we, we got to get the guards initiative, like reasoning for being there as they're looking for this violinist. Uh, old man kind of raises his hand with his spouse and says, hey, we both play the violin, but they just take one of them, right? So we can kind of see that the, this, these people in the back of the train are being exploited for their talents to then be taken up front part of the train to to please the elites right yeah um so that kind of just sets the tone right away again these this the back of the train these people are living in in crap like probably literally and figuratively <laughs> um and they're being used by the elites to their basically to their dwelling yeah and it's terrible because you know right away we can tell there is some sort of class class differential and you know, the old man, you know, begs basically that both of them go because they can both play, but yet we see them just to hold that power over them, separate them, and you can tell, like, this has been going on probably from the moment they stepped foot on this train for the last 17 years. So it's it's very clear right away that, you know, these people have had a terrible time, you know, on what was probably, they thought, you know, their safe haven, um, and it's just been miserable, you know, so far. Well, and it even right. goes beyond separating them. They finally, at the end of that interaction, put her hand on the floor and I believe smash it with the stock of a gun. So now she has a broken hand and physically is incapable of playing the violin. So it's beyond just being mean-spirited and separating them. It's malicious and violent. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too into like the sociopolitical or like try to bring current politics in, but obviously like these guards or these quote-unquote train police, right, are, are not shying away from using excessive force when they, all they, like, all they needed to do is say, hey, we're just taking your husband back off. Like, they're almost trying to emplace fear into the back passengers that it's our, listen to what we say and, and we won't physically harm you type of deal. Exactly. So super good of just, like, showing us that versus telling us, right, of, mm -hmm. of kind of what, what the police or what these guards are there for. So, and so then we kind of get to this, the next scene in the back of the bus where Tanya's son, her name is Timmy, uh, has what we learn are protein bars. They kind of just look like jelly bars. I think that's when I first watched the film. I'm like, oh, they're just kind of just jelly bars. But we learned that they're actually protein. And in Timmy's bar is, is a red uh, kind of letter that contains the name um, Nam, Nam Gus Minsu, uh, who is later just referred to as Nam or Nam, um, and the, basically he is a security expert that is held in the prison section of the train, which upon the revolt, they're going to try to free Nam, and he's going to take it to get to the front of the train because he's able to navigate the train security and open doors without having a security act, like a key access. Um, and so right away, like we're not even probably five to ten minutes in, and there's already this setup of a revolt, a revolution, right? Of these uh, tail end passengers are going to fight back and, and try to get to the front of the train in, in order to control it and control uh, again food supply, water supply, and just kind of quote unquote reallocate uh, uh, comfortability, wealth. right? the wealth yeah not saying that there's actual physical dollars that are present that we know of but at least 
not have the majority of these tail end passengers live like animals. So at this point, we're introduced to Gilliam, uh, who's kind of a father figure to Curtis. He's super old. This is kind of like one of the, the when I rewatched it this time, I'm like, the movie does so well depicting these tail end passengers as like dirty, like Gilliam himself, he's got like one arm and one leg and he's just like super skinny. Like Curtis's character, Chris Evans, this is like in the 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 heat of his <laughs> Captain America <laughs> filming. And so he's just like this big like dude. I know they try to cover him up and like they put a beard on him and like put some grease on his face to make him look dirty. But like you can just see his physical presence in this movie is just too much for someone who's lived on this tail end for 17 years. But all the other characters around him look like they've literally been living in nothing, like with very little resources for, for 17 years. So like that was a criticism I had. It's just like, I'm sure he didn't want to make, like change his body for this film and, and do a full like Christian Bale and the mechanic, right? Where he like right. loses 80 pounds or something. But again, they try to do their best to hide it, but he's still just like physically... Uh, overpowering Curtis's character and we definitely see that too like not to jump ahead too much but like in in some of his fighting ability it's just like (laughs) oh this guy's supposed to be like been eating half protein bars for the every day for the last 17 years but yeah I mean I agree 100% like it I mean it is what you kind of dealt the cards you're given um right but yeah they they do definitely try try their best cover it up for sure yeah Uh, well and if there's one thing that's absolutely true is i did i the first time seeing this movie um i didn't do any research going into it i just kind of threw it on at combination of aj and another podcast i listened to suggestion and when chris evans showed up i was absolutely floored i was like what is he doing in this kind of a little unknown movie (laughs) this guy's meant for blockbusters but mm-hmm. yeah, that was kind of beside the point i was just blindsided by him being in it at all let alone being fucking mm-hmm. huge yeah yeah so the, the conversation between gilliam and curtis you, you can see this father-son relationship set where curtis wants to lead this revolution physically but he believes that gilliam is going to be the one to be to conduct the train and, and to lead the train after the revolution where again gilliam hints that curtis is like everyone looks to you to be the leader like you need to step into those shoes and really embrace it where curtis again has some dark past but he's not willing to be the leader that everyone wants him to be quite and we can see like we can see the tail passengers opinion in edgar which is again almost like a, a a younger brother to Curtis at this point, where Edgar basically looks up to Curtis that he can do no wrong and that he's the leader that everyone needs him to be. So we kind of feel this dynamic out in this conversation. Um, again, the the we kind of cut to the next scene and the guards re-enter the train and start gathering all the children in the front of the train. And this is kind of our next viewing of how these uh glasses work they, they gather all the children and they actually begin measuring him this this super uh clean woman in this yellow coat walks up and begins measuring all the children very like methodically and, and almost soullessly uh timmy uh it, it, you know the the son of tanya is measured and he's the appropriate height and he's taking taken with another child who we find is andy 
and Andy's father, who is Andrew. I thought that was like a little confusing. So <laughs> Andrew's the father and Andy's the son. Uh, Andrew is not too happy that they're taking Andy and he fights back. And then he's going to be made of an example by the guards. And, and this is done pretty grotesquely where they make him uh, put his bare arm outside of the train for seven minutes, uh, which completely freezes it off. Later, they, they take his arm out and, and smash it with a sledgehammer in front of everyone to see. So they're utilizing, again, showing us as viewers of it's extremely cold outside. We're using this, again, as fear against you that you are stuck on this train. You can't leave. You're going to bend to our will. And if not, like you're going to suffer the consequences. Um, and the speech the speech that Mason gives and Tilda Swinton is, is pretty cool in this, this film as an actress. The, the speech that Mason gives kind of puts everyone back in their place. Uh, again, that everyone has a predisposition a pre-designed position and everyone has a specific purpose on this train, even the tail end passengers. And they're, they're meant for the back of the train. Like there's no way that they could ever be part of the upper class because they were meant for this tail end. And that's where they quote unquote belong. So not only are they using like uh, physical harm and physical fear, but obviously like manipulation of people's emotions and their, uh, their minds of, not putting them down continually physically and emotionally so they stay in this tail end yeah i mean that that scene where that lady comes in in the yellow coat i don't know if we ever quite catch her maybe her towards the end claude. we could claude um she is played mm -hmm. by oh shit now it's not at the top that um but she just like she stands out so much because so far in this first whatever 10 15 minutes of the film we've been in the back of this dirty dark train car right. and she kind of just stands out so much like she almost shines off the screen with how clean and proper and how bright of clothing she's wearing like you can tell that that was done in super intentionally to show the difference you know in sort of like where she's coming from versus where these people have been living for the last 17 years right and yeah right. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, Tilda Swinton, too, by the way, yes, is fantastic in this movie. <laughs> she's, like, crazy to think that she's, you know, the same person that plays um, in the Marvel movies. And then you see her dressed up as this, like, kind of somewhat grotesque character, but, like, at the same time, still above these people, you know? So, but, like, mm -hmm. And she yeah, really looks I, down on them, too. Like, it's yes. clear that there isn't active disdain right yeah i mean in her speech she, she refers to them as the heel or the the shoe on the foot uh, again implying that they're the ones that need to be in the in order for the head or you know that the, the elite of the train to prosper right so um again the act acting is great here the the speech she gives is super powerful and just sets the stage of uh, again this is in the full what, the 10, 15 minutes of the film. So it's really just getting us as viewers in the mindset of these people. Um, but, you know, after that all, all goes down, we kind of get another scene after the guards leave. And uh, we are first introduced to the drug Chronal. Uh, and Curtis is bargaining with what... Curtis believes is a super gross and smelly person, right? Even 
like to his Sabre. standards, yeah, yeah, to to Curtis standards, someone who lives in the tail end, he like can barely speak to this chronal addict uh, because he thinks he's like smelly. So like, there's almost even a, another class structure within the tail end of this these uh, these drug addicts that are in the tail versus someone even like Curtis, right? So it's not like everyone is even equal among the tail end passengers. For sure. And and it's kind of true, like, again, you, you back out to our world, right? You, you, there's cla- there's subclasses within the overall arching classes. So I think, like, showing that versus just telling that it is, is super powerful. Um, and, and Curtis discussed with, with Gilliam and Edgar, again, that he actually believes uh, that bullets, uh, that, that the guards have no bullets in their weapons. And this is kind of alluded to in in speech when, when Andrew's arm is out the window, she kind of makes a throwback comment of, put that useless gun away. And Curtis kind of picks up on that literally as in these guns are useless because over the past 17 years, there have, you know, they've hinted at multiple revolts, multiple uprisings, and the guards have wasted their bullets and, and currently no longer have any. Okay. Yeah. And so then, ooh, go ahead. No, so I was Andrew. just going to say, yeah, this definitely leads into like probably my favorite scene is at least the initial um but like a cool like a cool concept like you know the thought that like yes you see the guards with these guns but to even like have i think this is just great screenwriting is to even have Mm -hmm. that thought of like well what if the guns are empty then essentially they're useless and we over we outnumber them by you know 10 to 1 at this point like i mean it's just from what i've seen in the few movies um, I have seen from Bong Joon-ho is that his the the writing has just been top notch and it it's definitely on full display here and like um, just a cool concept I think to like bring in that I that you wouldn't really normally think of unless they physically said it which which is the path we take in this movie. One thing right, I thought was right. a little bit weird was if this and we don't find this out yet but we find out much later that this was designed to be like a train style cruise line right. Uh, why are there so many people prepared with Kevlar vests and automatic uh, guns on this train? I, I just, what was Wilford truly prepared for that he had this available already? Yeah, and that's probably a good, like, I don't know if it's a plot hole or just something that's not explained, right, is, is how how did Wilford... Again, if, if his initial intention was a luxury uh, train and then CW7's released, how much time would he have truly had to really to self-sustain this thing? And, yeah, and, and put these cl- classes in place. I'm fine with, like, spending that disbelief of, uh, you know, some of the internet trolls out there are always like, well, this doesn't make sense because such and such and blah, blah, like, there wouldn't have been enough time. Like, I can I can suspend that disbelief for the greater good of the movie, right? I'm not going to get hung up in details of... They would have had to have X, you know, X pounds of soil for the agricultural train in order to rotate every X years because the plants in there would have already drawn out all the nutrients and the compost went to like people that get that in depth into picking apart movies. I'm just like, yo, that's not the point. Like, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> they're not trying to measure it. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I do like the fact that they had some thought and there are limited resources on this train, bullets being one of them. Yep. Right? There, there's not some there's not some the ammo manufacturing train right that are they're printing out guns and reloading bullets right like they've they've they allude to this uh 
uh, limited resource concept. For sure. So, you know, in this whole time, we see that the tail end people are constructing what appears to be like a battering ram, right? And, and when I first watched, I'm like, oh, they're just going to ram through these doors. Um, and as they're making this ram, they actually are abruptly um, interrupted by what appears to be like an unscheduled guard visit. I think they have like a pretty good understanding of like when the guards come and when they don't, but they seem to be a little shook when the guards arrive at this time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Edgar and some of the people around Curtis, they keep on asking under their breath if this is like the time for them to step up and, and actually like start the revolution. Curtis has like a little bit of internal thought. He steps up to one of the guards and he actually puts it to his head and pulls the trigger himself. Um, the gun is empty. No, nothing happens. Edgar and everyone starts to yell. Obviously, like the guns are useless. They begin fighting. And this is what I thought was super creative. It's not necessarily battering ram more so. It's this massively long um, object to get through all the doors to have them maintain open so they can't physically close. Right? So they don't use it as a weapon to like push or break through any doors rather than to keep them open for long periods of time so they can't lock them. Right. Which again, super like just smart, right? Like mm -hmm. I would have not have thought of like that aspect of it. Well, and it was neat too because you get like one shot when they're kind of running through the halls and like one, it's like a bunch of barrels like Right. almost welded together it looks like however they constructed it but you even have they must have had some people like inside because at one point like the barrels barrels break apart and somebody like crawls through like kind of like a tunnel so you're like can mm -hmm. like transport people through there and yeah they sit there then long enough to hold all those doors open to let everybody else do yeah a very cool concept for sure Right. In addition, if yeah, the, I, if the guns were operational and they were inside those barrels, like if they had people going through there, that would have been a decent way to protect them. So it serves a right. multitude of purposes, which is cool. Yeah. Right. This is kind of the first action scene, like fighting scene we, we get, and we kind of understand of how these fight scenes are going to be constructed just visually too, right? Uh, there's not too many cut scenes in the fighting, which is, again, I think is pretty unique especially nowadays with action scenes and they use this linear approach of uh, again either behind or in front uh, of whoever's fighting and we actually get to see gray who is a character who, who uh there's this massive guard swinging this huge uh, i don't know if it's like a bludgeon or like a weight or it's similar like to a the hammer they used to crush the guy's arm yeah and Gray, who is pretty athletic, again, maybe uh, if you want to call it a plot hole, was like, how is this person so like uh, physically gifted and high-end fighter? He kind of swoops up uh, almost like a free runner, right? Like almost a little parkour, gets on top of this guy and stabs him, this massive guard. So we get to introduce to Gray, uh, who we later find, you know, will go up, up the train with Curtis. So again, the, you know, the at this point, like the Talon mob has at least breached the first couple of trains and have over has overtaken the guards to where they can be pursuing up to the prison cell. And they get to the prison cell and they release Na uh, Nam, who does not actually speak English. Uh, we, we find out that he's a chronal addict as well and why he's there. 
And this is actually the part where we find that chronol is super flammable. It's basically the industrial waste of the train uh, melded down into a chemical, like a hard chemical, almost looks like a putty. And it's a super heavy hallucinogen, right? So it's being produced from the train itself and used as a hallucinogen uh, by whoever who sniffed it. So you don't have to consume it simply just by breathing it in. Yeah. <clears throat> so along that, you know, they, they're trying to convince Nam to go up the train and he's he's a little hesitant. Uh, you know, there, there's a scuffle and Curtis is really trying to pursue because they they physically need him to go any further to start opening doors. Right. Nam agrees that if they take um, his daughter, Yona, uh, who is also a chronal addict, but also that they get two uh, pieces of chronal every train they pass. Which is a lot because one thing uh, that it, did it say it in the uh, what's it called? Or did you say it at the beginning? It's a thousand cars long, so that's two thousand little chunks of yeah. chronol they would get. And these they're about yeah. the size of a golf ball, maybe. So I mean, they're not little, right? Right. right. And I that that one thousand car train that's from the graphic novel itself. You know, they don't allude to that of in in the movie. Okay. So it's like. Which, again, was a heavy troll criticism that people say, like, oh, like, you know, where where do all these people sleep? Like, we never see, like, a bunk car or anything like that. I was like, well, if, in the novel, like, it's a 10-mile-long train. Like, the movie's not going to show every single car. Like, obviously, there's people sleeping and stuff like that. Like, we're only kind of phys- physically shown you know, the cars that we'll kind of go through as, as they can up the train. But yeah, the ones I where can, the again, suspend... Happens. Yeah, I can suspend the disbelief if they're walking through bunk cars, right? Yeah. Um, well, just because you physically wouldn't have the time, you know, like yeah. someone might concern, you know, that you don't really know how much time has passed. Um, I mean, you get like one glimpse of when they, they hit something, but that doesn't really tell you how long they've been like kind of moving amongst the cars. Right. But, but yeah, I agree. I mean, right. I don't I don't really feel the need to show them walk through a thousand cars if someone really has got a problem with that. <laughs> right. That's that's on them. Right. <laughs> right. So the, the next car they actually enter into is a bunk car. Like is it's all just full of beds. And it's all empty. And, and obviously they're, they're, there's a little bit of, Hey, where the heck are these people if these beds are empty? But here's where we're actually shown like the frozen tundra first. Um, there's a window in this car, <clears throat> and as it comes out of the tunnel, they're obviously blinded by this light, uh, which there are no windows in the tail end car where they've been living. So this, their eyes need a, quite a quite a time to adjust. But we get to see basically just this frozen world of why they cannot leave this train. Um, and again, the visuals are pretty stunning, at least in this part, you know, the CGI used to illustrate like this frozen world. It's pretty, pretty great for the budget that the film had. Yeah, for sure. I think like, this is like a pretty powerful scene. Cause you can see like almost the wonder in everybody's right. eyes. Like there's like, for who knows, like this is the first time many of them have probably seen sunlight you know for lack of a right. term so i just thought that it was extremely well done to kind of show like yes these people are on a mission to kind of like move further along the train but at the same time they would be like 
kind of star like starstruck for lack of a better term like by by sunlight in something they hadn't seen either in a very long time or many of them that were born on the train ever you know so i thought that was just a really cool like tidbit that they threw in while they were kind of Mm -hmm. moving along and that's a good thing to bring up too because they've been on the train for 17 years now there are literal generational differences between those people who were outside at the beginning i.e curtis gilliam tanya the adults um and those people whether they're like the small children like timmy and andy or we come to find out that edgar is what they call a train baby people who are 17 and Mm -hmm. under that were actually born after entering the train so they've yeah those are the ones that like you said have never seen sunlight yeah yeah we find out that yona um nam's daughter she is a train baby as well so she was born in the train uh and Funny enough, in the next in the next car, they run into Paul, who appear they, they appear to have known each other. Curtis and Paul mm-hmm. and Edgar know who Paul is, and he's really in charge of making these protein bars. The, the next car they're in is is truly a man. All it's utilized for is mean t- making protein bars, and uh, we come to find out of what's in these protein bars, which is pretty gross. I, Cockroaches are some sort of bug. Yeah, they're um, pureed and kind of baked a little bit into that jelly, and it it's right. disgusting. And only Curtis, and then we uh, this other person who's like documenting their travels via pictures. He's like a artist. They're the only two that see this, and Curtis even makes a point of telling the the other person like let's not tell everyone else like what the hell are in these things like let's not cripple them like we need their sh- like men- mental strength right and it's kind of gross the imagery because curtis is in almost vomiting looking at these cockroaches and on the assembly line where these protein bars are coming out all these tail and patches are just like chowing down on these protein bars it was very gross because they even like like they just got the fresh image of yes like all those cockroaches literally being like grinded up in this vat in this vat and then just being you know launched out on this platform into these squares and the people here on the back are just like devouring them it's (laughs) oh it's not it's very queasy for sure oh man and and so um Paul, we, we learned Paul actually has another message. Uh, it kind of drops out of his apron, and Curtis obviously gets super defensive pretty quickly, and Paul makes it pretty clear that he's not aware. He's not the one who's writing these messages. He's not even aware who they're coming from. All he's been told is put the messages in the protein bars as he sends them to the back of the tail. Okay, So we know that whomever is writing, we haven't been introduced to who's writing these messages yet. It's someone up the train. Um, and, and Curtis is Curtis also doesn't know as we kind of find that out as well. And, nor does Gilliam. I at this point in time we don't think Gilliam knows either um, because he would have told Curtis right. Mm-hmm. But the message on this note just states water, uh, and, and Gilliam comes to realization that a few cars up is the water supply. And that this may be the key for them to not even have to go to the head of the train all the way because if they control the water supply, uh, they control uh, the elites, right? Because they can turn turn on and turn off the water. Uh, in this train, too, kind of some interesting dialogue or conversation between Curtis and Yona. Uh, Yona can apparently see what's in front of the train car. 
uh, doors. I don't know how she <laughs> does this. Um, I couldn't really tell either. I wouldn't know. I almost thought maybe because she could like hear almost to a sense what was going on. I know. I don't know. I don't know if her senses have been, because she's been born in this train, I don't know if she's like adapted and her senses are different. To be able to block the excess noise out. Curtis, right. Because again, Curtis has all, you know, he was born outside of the train. So his, his DNA or like just his senses have adapt, you know, have had to adapt over time where she literally is born here from a baby and her body has somehow like, adapted and her other senses have been heightened i don't i don't know to be apparently it's not it's not uncommon because curtis asks if she's actually clairvoyant like he knows that people have this ability because he's not surprised by it he like is like oh you're clairvoyant yeah and she kind of like, like so it's not like new to him or like some groundbreaking power but to me though this was maybe the least favorite detail of this entire... Well, and by least favorite, I actively dislike this detail. Um, because if they were aware of other people being clairvoyant, why did they not use that in planning the movement right. forward or have another character already who had presented with that if they're aware of it, right? So, like, the, the, and after this, it's never brought up again. Like, not once. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's... It's a throwaway thing that was just weird and didn't quite fit to me. Right. I think because, yeah, it's like once or twice she kind of notions towards the next door, um, which we'll get to here, I think. But, yeah, but like you said, Jim, other than that, then it really – I mean, there might be a couple times throughout the film then where she, like, kind of perks up and, like, when somebody or something's coming, but – yeah, they don't really touch on it too much or, like, try yeah. to explain, like, where she might have got, you know, this ability or something. Right. Yeah, so if, if they would have removed it to Jim's point out of the film, it, but the film would not have been changed one bit. So I have it in there, I think, is what you're kind of yeah. saying, right? Jim? Yeah. Because it, 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 it doesn't truly provide them any advantage. At the end of this scene, she says, don't open the door as soon as Nam right. gets the door open and then we move into the next car. So it's like <laughs> yeah. a bunch of help that was. <laughs> and so like their next, I say like mini, mini operation is to get to like the water train mm-hmm. car, right? The water supply. But in order to do so, again, Jim, Jim pointed out, they open this door. Uh, Yona is like, don't do it. They open it up and there's an, a small army of, hooded aproned individuals like leather daddies yeah like axes with axes and this is where like the stakes in my mind i'm like okay this is real now right like they're if they're the the elites or i should say people in front of the train willfully know about this revolt that's happening they put measures in place to stop them like there's going to be conflict from this train and every train forward. Like, you know, it's, it's actually like where the war begins in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's some weird imagery where like the, these henchmen or I'll say like the front, the front army or the elite army, they like cut a fish gut open mm-hmm. with the axes. Again, I didn't understand that. I was like, maybe it's almost like they're taunting them because I'm sure from Yona's perspective, she's probably never even seen a fish. Like, so, like, right. Cause she's been born in the back of the train. Like, so uh, again, 
didn't really understand that, but um, uh, basically they, they begin to fight, right? Like uh, people in the front have axes, people in the back tail end have kind of makeshift weapons, kind of like pipes. Obviously, as as they they take over the front, they pick up axes from fallen like these fallen front members. And again, the action in this scene is pretty cool because they're so, confined to such a small space. Yes, right. So like the actual choreography with how many people are shoved in this small space fighting with these axes is actually pretty cool. It was, and it is a brutal, brutal scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean. To your to your point that you made earlier, Anthony, like Curtis does his the best Captain America impression. <laughs> you know, a couple of times I've seen this, like when he like swings his arm up like with the axe, it literally looks like he's using his shield, like in the Marvel movies, like right. a couple times. Like you notice, I just right. whipped that and I ripped my headpiece out of my ear, but when I was trying to like show off what he was doing, but yeah, no, like awesome, like visual, like. Yeah. action scene here for sure yeah this is where you yeah. see that how much of a disadvantage the tail folks are at too right. everything that they have is what they've been able to cobble together on their own whereas these guys are coming in they're prepared with manufactured axes or like legitimate like they're all in like leather jackets which i think is for aesthetic but like that's going to hold up much better than a cotton t-shirt when you're swinging an axe at somebody right, right. yep right it, yeah it's the true the volume like the the massive army versus the few with better technology right mm-hmm. like uh, because the tail and passengers still outnumber these individuals and in this scene you know we see the tail mob actually overtake the car or begin to push forward and, and really take this kind of war train car is what I'll maybe I'll refer to as but as they're about to get to the front a massive horn sounds signaling an, another year passed on the train and obviously that that's determined of like where they physically are geographically on this train and so there's like a little like again these front passengers are almost like cultish that they stop what they're doing <laughs> they give praise to wilford and like another year on the train they all raise their axes and they almost they say something they I don't count know, down like, from 10 to 1 and then shout happy yeah. new year <laughs> yeah and so, like, again, it's just, like, you're, they're in this fight, but it, like, doesn't matter. They're part of this cult that is super, like, basically, Wilford's this god, and this train is, like, their arc. And um, all, like, in that period of time, even the tail end passengers make some comments to another year of shit life on the train. Mm-hmm. I think Edgar kind of makes a throwaway comment. And um, then we get this, uh, again one of the leaders of the front over the intercom says brace for impact. And we learn that there's two massive ice caps over the track and Snowpiercer has to break through them, which obviously like shocks the entire train and it almost falls off. And yeah, the train almost falling off of the track, the physics there, you know, probably can get sick. <laughs> you can get some pretty nitpicky because the physics that the train maintain the tracks is pretty, uh, pretty far fetched, but nonetheless, they Snowpiercer bursts through these ice caps and they, they maintain, they, they continue to fight. Um, one piece that I want to bring up is like during them breaking through these ice packs, they're all on the ground because they're trying to brace themselves for these massive impacts. In the 
this time Nam actually picks Yona up on his shoulders and makes her look out the window for him down into this valley where we can see like the almost like the an air it all it's an airplane is what it is but like it's a silhouette because it, it's in the ice it's like in the snow but it's kind of foreshadowing what we learn in the in, in later in the movie but it, I thought it was super important and when I was watching it for the first time and over again I'm like oh this like makes sense now why everyone is trying to save themselves from these ice caps and uh, Nam is making a point that Yona like sees outside this window mm -hmm. right one of the one of the other main things here is that Mason at some point and I thought it was at around this point gets up and says precisely 74% of you will die and kind of shouts like this is useless don't do this we're going to kill 74% right. of you which comes back later yeah <laughs> yeah again um literally after the ice caps are broke correct Mason comes in and she gives another speech regarding of how uh, ungrateful like the tail job is to even think about doing this because Wilford is merciful and Wilford has given you life by letting you drive on a train so she's again talking down to them and this is where she kind of states that hey if you pursue any further 74% of you're going to die and super calculated and uh, Yona and Nam kind of again throw away comments They're, they haven't like fully <laughs> Uh, supported this revolt yet they're just long for the chronal at this point they know that there's a massive tunnel coming up uh after after the new year passes it's always like a couple mile long tunnel that the train enters so this front the front army actually puts on night vision goggles they enter the tunnel it's completely black and this is where the the tail end mob gets to just this shit beat out of them again like super the camera moves into like this first person like visual mode and it's all in night like that green night vision goggle um filming but just super brutal executions because these tail end passengers physically can't see and they're just murdering them yeah just a very helpless scene because you could tell, like you said, Nam was kind of, I think he wanted to make a comment like, oh, you're all going to die or something, or something like along the lines of like that. Yeah. And then they enter this tunnel. And yeah, like you said, with that kind of first person view of like this front army, um, you can tell how scared, you know, from their point of view that these back passengers are because they just, they're kind of like aimlessly swinging their weapons because they can't really tell where anybody is. And then they just get like stabbed right in the chest. I'm like, it's. It was another really cool, um, neatly shot action sequence, but again, shows like how kind of like overwhelmed they really are when it comes to like, you know, technology and like knowledge of, you know, where they are, you know, in the trains and stuff like that. Right. So Curtis yells back, and, and again, probably another criticism of the movie. They're probably 10, 15 cars up from the tail. A simple yell of like, we need fire. And all of a sudden someone from the tail end, this little boy grabs a torch and is like running from the back. Again, another criticism when I was like actively watching the movie, I was like, but that like that that really doesn't make any sense, right? Like, Well, right. And but then anyway. didn't they have like 
the one boy starts running and one then I think Andrew starts running with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then all of a sudden there's like 20 of them that have torches. I don't know like yeah. where that, you know, I'm sure they had something like whipped up already and then they kind of just like spread it around. But right. Yeah. Well, right. Like the old, the old Indiana Jones, like in a cave, Hey, my torch, I'll like, and all of a sudden we have two equal torches. I was like, well, that doesn't work. <laughs> to me, the bigger issue with this is like they, they get the torches and that's what turns the tide of this fight and allows uh, the the tail folks to push forward and finally like overtake the army. Um, and I, I'm not sure that that would have done it, right? You know, I mean, because th- we see via that first-person p- POV for a moment, it's not as though the fire is enough to blind the people using night vision, which is what I thought they would go for. It's more still this mm-hmm. now we just have a fiery bludgeoning thing instead of a, right. a bl- just a regular bludgeoning. Yeah. Right. I th- my only point there is, like, before the front army put the night guys on it literally looks like there's only like 12 of them left like there they were not many like front army people after like the first fight like i think the tail mob really like took it to them and they were almost at the front before the new years and before the ice caps because like i physically rewound that because i thought the same thing jim <laughs> like these yeah okay you have torches now like what honestly has changed like you you can only see maybe a foot in front of you with a right. torch right or an, and they're all wearing black too so it's not like it's they're gonna <laughs> yeah, pop right. for you <laughs> but then i rewound i was like okay there's literally like only 12 guards left like okay maybe because of just the sheer volume of tail passengers still in this train like they could have done it so i was like okay whatever hmm. but super pivotal point for curtis in this so at the point where they 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 receive the torches and are fighting, uh, he sees Mason getting away, and I thought the imagery of just Curtis's shot here, where he looks to the forward of the train and sees Mason, he looks to the back and sees Edgar, who's now been taken hostage, mm-hmm. and he just has to make a choice, right? Like he either has to save Edgar or he has to capture Mason and and really be able to per- keep pursuing this revolution. He, you know, he chooses to get Mason, which he's successful, but then Edgar is then killed. So, you know, basically Curtis's younger brother is killed, which I thought was super good in this movie because too often this, like the stakes are made real yet again, right? Like not, we, we learn very quickly that not all of these characters that we've like Andrew and Tanya and Gilliam and Curtis and Edgar, like, Edgar dying at this point in the movie, we're like, oh, like, even Curtis's life is at stake. Like, I, at this point in the film, when I first watched it, I was like, I don't even know if Curtis is ever going to make it there, right? Like, these are not invincible characters, uh, again, like we see in superhero films or we see in TV. Like, these characters, they can be killed, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought that was powerful. Yeah, and it tells you a lot about, you know, Curtis in general. Like, he obviously cared for Edgar a ton but at the same time right. was willing to kind of for like the greater good you know he knew he right. needed her as a hostage to kind of you know if if not at least speed up kind of the transition throughout the train you know they might right. have been able to continue without her but having her as some somewhat of a hostage kind of makes it easier for them to kind of right. move from car to car right well, and I think yeah, that... Uh, like a bargaining he, ship. He yeah. had to weigh some options really quick, obviously, right? But, like, 
if he had turned back to try and save Edgar, that would have sacrificed their only bargaining chip, which ends up being Mason when right. they take her. And right. he knows that if if they turn back, this is done, and it's likely never happening again, because now the front has seen every single strategy they had, which seems to be the best strategies that have been developed over years, because there have been other revolts that didn't make it very far, that they're mm-hmm. not going to get another shot at this. It's this or nothing, right. so he had to sacrifice Edgar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Super good. Again, showing us... I just love... In this movie, because it's a train, right, the the camera angle is almost always to the side, right? Like, we never get too many, like, up the train car, you know, a couple shots here. And for the most part, it's all being shot from left to right, right? Like, left being the behind the train, like, the past, and the front being the forward, like, the right being the forward, the train, or the future. So it's like, I just like how he physically had to turn and look like, do I go back? Do I go to the past? Like to Jim's point, and yeah. do we, this revolt, this is our last chance, or do I turn right, go Mason and like push forward? I just think that little detail of film, of film is super powerful. Yeah. But I, Extremely well done. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, they capture Mason, they, they control the train and they now have control of the water supply. Tanya and Andrew, the the uh, adults whose children were taken, are heavily interrogating Mason, asking where they are. Um, basically, Mason kind of throws Wilford under the bus here and says it's all Wilford's fault. <laughs> like he's the one who wants the children, which I think is funny, right? It, it's it's like she thinks Wilford's like some god, and all of a sudden, like she's now a hostage, and she's like, no, it's Wilford's fault. Like I had nothing to do with it. Um, so I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, again. We don't have to get into it, but just like typical elite mentality, right? Yeah, save yourself. <laughs> really just cares yeah, about their own lives, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. um, and they, Cur- Curtis wants to speak to Wilford now via telephone because they want to negotiate. Not only do they have Mason, but they also have the water supply. And feel like they have some leverage now. And Mason shoots that idea down pretty quick. Because the water is actually uh, retrieved from the front of the train. So the front of the train actually like melts the ice caps as it goes through, filtrates the water all the way down. And so like this this water supply cart is really only a holding tank. You know, if they cut off this train, the the elites still have a water supply from from how it's um, you know distilled, not distilled, but at least filtrated from the front of the train. And um Basically, Curtis is like, well, then you're useless to me. I'm going to kill you. And Mason basically, uh, again, begs for life, saying that without her, there's no way they'll ever get to the train. So Curtis keeps her alive. Again, we're, until this movie, Chris Evans has been like this PG-13 actor. He drops like six F-bombs <laughs> talking to Mason in this scene. I'm just like, dude, I love this Chris <laughs> Evans. Like... He's dropping F-bombs. He's, like, being super aggressive, just, like, something we haven't seen Chris Evans do in his filming career up to this point. Well, and he certainly and just seems like, to be a dark hero here, too. You know, he's yeah, got a past yeah. that you can kind of sense is there, but that hasn't been explained. Yeah, and so I just thought that. I was like, dude, he's dropped, like, five or six F-bombs in a matter of two minutes. Like, I love Curtis. <laughs> yeah, he's a great character. Well, it's like Chris Evans, you know, you really only knew him as Captain America, right. but even then, in this, uh, he's always been that, a human torch to me. 
that movie <laughs> yeah. that movie that came out um like last year two years ago where he plays like an absolute like dickhead it's in uh oh knives out knives yeah, out. yeah, yeah, yeah. it's knives just like out. a total yeah. 180 of like what you're so used to him seeing so like yeah. yeah this being an older movie you know comparative to that um it was kind of refreshing to see him you know kind of step away from like sort of that kind of high mantle we're so right. used to him being on but it's it, it show, he definitely shows off his range too i think he's he's fantastic right. in this movie yeah um so that night uh, Gilliam and Curtis have a conversation and it's, you know, it's determined that Curtis needs to take a few people with Mason and move forward in terms of speed. They feel like they, they may be losing some of their momentum and leverage. It's just going to be faster to get to the front of the train if Gilliam and the majority of the tail mob doesn't, doesn't go with them. Um, and Gilliam makes like an interesting comment to Curtis at the end of the scene where he says um, if you get to the front and when you speak to Wilford don't let him talk just cut out his tongue and a, a little bit of foreshadowing of this Wilford is kind of like a slick you know a snake oil salesman almost right. to him like yeah that comment alone is don't let him persuade you like don't let him uh, get you off of your path just by him talking so I again a little Watching it again, I'm like, oh, that like that line just had so much more meaning to me that I know what's going to happen in the future. Super good. With them trying to thin the herd a little bit going forward here, it really only read to me as a movie making thing. Let's focus on the mm-hmm. main characters now, not spread right. your attention. Because I absolutely disagree with Gilliam's idea. Like, yeah, you can move faster with fewer people. <laughs> But slow and steady wins the race. The more people you have, the more expendable right. people you have, the more you'll be able to overpower them, right? Because otherwise, right. Curtis is seen as the leader, obviously. If Curtis goes down, right. things are done anyways. He needs to be throwing expendable right. people in front of him like a general yeah. or something. So the entire argument is truly just a movie-making thing. It's not yeah. actually, in my mind, effective. I think it works only in the sense that they just had this major fight with these axe people, right? And mm-hmm. Gilliam even refers to like our wounded physically. A lot of them can't even that move is right now, right? Like we're we're t- like thirty minutes away from like the most brutal fight we've been in. And to Gilliam's point itself, the dude's got like one leg and one arm. Like he's not the most fast moving individual. Right? You're not like, wrong. Even getting mm-hmm. through, a, yeah, even getting through one car that has no obstacles, yeah. like. Dude just can't walk very fast. Um, so Curtis, it's Curtis, Tanya, Andrew, Mason, Nam, Yona, and Gray. They're basically like, uh, they're they're the people that are going to move forward. And, and again, uh, one criticism I has like this person has like drawing like these events. He doesn't go with them. So I'm like, dude, this person like has no. They kind of like always made a uh, an effort to like show this person drawing like all of these events. But then they're like, ah, don't go with us in the future. Like, we don't need to document what happens here. Like, just stay behind right. with Gilliam and the rest of them. And that's like the last so we see of them, I think, right? Right. For the most part. <laughs> yeah. So it's like this side plot that literally just goes absolutely nowhere. Right. A criticism I had kind of watching it over again. Um, so this is where we kind of get rapid, rapid cars that we see. It's kind of been slow to this point of the number of cars we've been in, but it moves pretty fast here. Um 
So the next car we get to is like an agriculture car. Again, visually, it's stunning. Like we get to see a lot of green colors, red from the tomato. Um, one thing I picked up is as we kind of move through these cars, the passengers that are already in these cars, so like the agriculture workers, and then the next one is the aquarium with like the bartender. They don't seem to be like uh, phased that like these tail end passengers are just walking through. They're just like, oh, like whatever, go ahead. Like I understand that Mason's with them, but I just think it kind of goes with like, they're kind of getting further and further to the elite cars. And so like their perception, they almost just don't care. Right. Like, and they just don't care. If this is even happening. Yeah. And watching this now, probably for like the second or third time, I still like am thrown off by it. It's like, you'd almost think like with them being such a higher class, they would be kind of at least, and some of them have a little like disgust on their face, I guess. But like some mm-hmm. of them, I am almost just shocked every time I see this at how calm they are like none of them seem to like rush up or try to like get out of the right. out of the car they kind of just sit down and continue doing what they're doing whether they're eating or like we see some of right. them getting their hair done or whatever you know they never really <laughs> they don't really overreact which is what you would think would happen from what we've seen so far right right yeah so we, we you know we get to an aquarium car against super stunning visuals because there's literally water encapsulated all around them and again, for the budget that the movie had, just super great color and, and just camera angles, and it's just great. The aquarium scene, I won't sit on it too long, but, you know, they eat sushi, and, and again, Mason relates and, and goes back to this speech about balance, right, of everything in the cars have to be balanced. They only eat fish twice a year, not because the lack, uh, the lack of fish they have, but to actually prevent the fish from overpopulating right so kind of a foreshadowing to what we we learn later in the movie that the fish are actually eaten so they don't overpopulate themselves um super interesting there so again she reiterates the balance curtis makes her eat this protein bar in front of everybody so that was kind of cool um Did anybody else just again, curtis, think, like where he was hanging on to that thing the whole time or like blood or something I, I mean, a giant, I, I didn't think about that. giant like, battle he just went through yeah <laughs> yeah it's like not even mush and solid but yeah but again like again curtis knows what's in those protein bars yeah. and so does mason but no one else does so it's like they just have this super intense staring like you're gonna eat this shit and i'm gonna watch you like kind of satisfactory sticking it to the man for there. sure and then the next car that they enter, which is probably the most cringy car, is the school car. Yeah. So they enter a scar, a, a, basically an, a car that is set up like a classroom. And these privileged children um, are learning like propagandic brainwashing material, right? That Wilford is basically, again, it's like, they're, they're molding into this cult, right? And obviously, they've been on the train for 17 years, so these privileged children have, have also been born. Um, but, you know, we see a video, and this is kind of where we learn in this video of, uh, again, how the train works, where it circumvents the globe, what it was made for originally. And um, they, they give a couple, like, cult-like uh, hails to Wilford, these kids and the teacher. And, and even Mason gets into it, too. Like, she's almost – she almost kind of gets 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 off on, like, 
talking about Wilford and like praising him. Well, and they have but, a little bit of a turn here with the dialogue they use about him too. They reference him as a prophet who predicted right. the CW7 catastrophe and whether you want to believe that or not is up to you. And so that's why he created a self-sustaining engine um and which they right. now start constantly referring to as the sacred engine and it it's, right. it plays him as a, a god figure for sure it's got mm-hmm. it between the cult vibes you're talking about and how they all literally sing his praises at one point in this scene it feels yeah. very churchy culty thing mm-hmm. yeah so the last thing i wanted to talk about before we we ramp up this what happens in this scene is the uh the teacher makes a specific point to teach a lesson to the kids in in the train car about uh the revolt of the seven which is a previous revolt i think it it I think it was like three years into snow piercers like the basically three years into the like apocalypse seven passengers try to escape the train and actually were successful and got out of the train and the seven froze to death you can kind of see their frozen corpses still on the snow hill and as the train passes the kids kind of point them out. And again, in cultist fashion, the teacher says, like, if we ever leave the train, we and then the kids respond with, we all freeze and die. <laughs> yeah. Like so uh, th- this uh this revolt of the seven again reiterates that there's past revol or attempts at past revolutions. And again, like you're this mind numbing, like you can never leave this train mentality. Right, right. So in in the school car then, uh, Gerald, who is the, the old man violinist, returns and begins playing for the children and eggs are being passed out, which I believe is to celebrate the new correct. year, correct? Yeah. And they're like hard-boiled because at first I was very confused by that. <laughs> like why they're just like, eggs. Yes. <laughs> they've eradicated salmonella, good to go. Uh, and... Uh, this the man pushing this egg cart uh, is pushing it all through the cars, and there's uh, we see the violin playing, um, and in Curtis's egg specifically, there's another message. He he pulls it out. He, he's kind of like taken back by this of like, oh, like what the heck is in this egg? He pulls it out, and the message just reads blood. And the man that's pushing the car is now all the way back, uh, where like behind the behind the water supply car where Gilliam is uh, pulls out an actual gun and just kills everybody. And the teacher also pulls out a gun, which this teacher's pregnant too. So it's kind of like a funny imagery of just like this pregnant woman in this free dress that seems kind of like uppy and, and privileged just pulls out this gun and starts firing at everybody. Um, and this is kind of where, I love how the movies, you know, we, we have this perception that there's no bullets available, right? Well, looky, looky, like the privileged still have like the upper hand and now have automatic weapons. So basically everyone in the, in the back besides Gilliam, I believe, is now dead. And how they how they beat this teacher is gray whips a knife at the teacher like right into her neck which i thought was pretty sweet and uh so the teacher is now dead which also implies that the 
baby inside of her's head. I was kind of like super dark. Yeah, when they I was don't watching pull any punches with like, that. No. <laughs> yeah. But again, like, I don't feel bad for like this elite teacher, but at the same time, like, oh, that's kind of dark. Um, so a horn sounds again and the TV screen on the school cart comes on and it shows, which I believe his name is Franco. The man's name is Franco. He's basically like uh, the muscle of, of Wilford. Uh, he turns and just executes Gilliam and obviously Curtis sees and watches that uh, and Curtis is pretty enraged rightfully so and he takes the gun out of the teacher's hands and executes Mason just point blank um, so, so again super powerful scene again like Curtis now at this point knows that it's like he is the leader here like without him you know, Gilliam's gone right like there's no way Gilliam's going to lead like the people once they take the train, like it's Curtis and basically just the few people left with him that are of the tail end because most of them have been executed. So, um, the next few cars again, happen super quick, but visually we kind of see them becoming more and more like bougie. Uh, we go and one car it, like is just a tailor like this guy just getting a suit fitted one's a dentist one guy is literally just reading eating an apple yeah, it's like a library one, is what i thought that library was library car right um and then one is just like a, a like there's like four or five jacuzzis in the one and uh in this kind of montage of these bougie cars franco is pers- is trying to catch up with curtis and the gang from behind um, and they finally, like when, when Franco finally meets up with them, they're in this like sauna yellowish car, which I, again, I, I was super cool. Just how, how they filmed it with the camera angles and like this kind of maze of a car they were in. Um, and there's another fight that pursues because now obviously Curtis has a gun and so does Franco. So there, there's a kind of like a little shooting spree that goes on in this sauna And the thing that I wrote down that was kind of interesting is Franco blindly fires into the sun and kills an elite member. Mm -hmm. So it appears, and the guard next to Franco like accuses him of that and says like, you just shot like a front, a front passenger. Franco doesn't give a fuck. Like he blasts, he blasts like this guard next to him. So like there, it seems to be some sort of like law structure of like, you can't harm these front elites. Franco seems to be like above that law somehow. Like he he's he's not only the muscle, but he's like the judge and the executioner as well. Like in this train. Well, and the best so part of that this was like to super was, interesting. Uh, the other guard, because there were two of them with him. Franco turns to the other guard, and that one says, "I didn't see nothing." And that's <laughs> yeah, the, that's so the end of the conversation about yeah. the dead passenger. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, even even a class structure or a power structure among the elites, right? That this Franco, uh, and, and I'm assuming Mason would have fallen into that. And, and Claude, her, you said her name was Claude, right? The yellow the gal, lady. The yellow. Yeah. They're almost like there's basically like if you think of it, a pyramid. Like there's there's obviously Wilford, and then probably like Claude and Mason and Franco are like the next tier, and then like the you think of it that way. So like there's even class structure among the elites, which is kind of funny. Um, and again, this happens super fast, but a ton of, a ton of it happens in this fight scene where basically 
Tanya and Gray distract Franco and Curtis are fighting. Uh, Gray ends up saving Curtis. Um, however, Franco kills both Tanya and Gray in this scene and, and Curtis survives. So a little bit of sacrifice. Again, Gray and Tanya are of the mindset uh, that um, like it's basically Curtis's mission or, you know, they see him as fulfilling the prophecy of like uh, finishing this revolution alone. So at this point, uh, it's it's literally just Curtis, Nam, and, and um, Yona, and everyone else is dead. Right. Um, and and we're left seeing uh, his name's Franco. You said right. Yeah, I, I looked it up, and it's it's Franco. Yeah. yeah. So they leave him lying there with. Uh, a knife that Curtis finally stabs into his side, just lying on the ground. So at this point they have no quote unquote pursuers. It appears. Right. Right. So this is kind of where it gets like super weird. Uh, again, I think there's another tone shift again. It's like Curtis, Nam and Yona, they move forward in the train and the next car they aim is like some weird sex, like a rave. rave. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, I'm like, oh, this is, like, an interesting car to... Because, like, we went through a car of just, like, pure elites of, like, bow ties and fancy dresses and, like, sipping martinis. And then this train is somehow in front of that in terms of, like, status. Um, So I thought that was kind of interesting of why, like, the ordering of the cars, like, this sex rave. And then the next one, which appears to be um, an attic, like, almost like an addict house of people that are just, like bonked out on chrono yeah. is the car where the people are just laying there totally high they have no clue what's going on curtis namanyano like uh or yona just move through the car literally with ease because everyone's just not even conscious right and, and in this meantime it's kind of funny because nam and yona are just scooping up all the chrono they possibly can in the rave car in this addict car um so now they're like the richest chrono people on the train. That was kind of funny. One thing that does come around too, that from here, they grab fur coats and fur boots from mm-hmm. some of the people in the addict car. Just not just Nam and Yona do. Curtis does not, right? Uh, and then the next car that they're in is like an IT control room, which I thought was kind of cool. Again, alluding to like someone has to run this train and it would make sense that it's most near to the engine. Um, and then the car that is after the IT room is really the second car or like basically it's almost like an industrial engine. It looks like an industrial engine room, right? There's steam, there's a bridge that is kind of going over an engine parts. And then there's this, this massive, this massive like metal door that has a big W like W Wilford on it. And, um, at this point, Yona is actually pretty zonked out on Chrono. From she, she like could not resist. She's just sniffing it ever since like the rave car, and so she's actually just kind of like laying in this car. And Curtis actually gets a little aggressive with Nam to open the door to Wilford, and Nam refuses. And um, th- again, Curtis gets a little emotional, but Nam actually tries to persuade Curtis not to open the Wilford door, but to open the door to like the outside world um, by, by using the chrono as a bomb, right? So 
it's kind of like, uh, hey, Nam is this this chronal addict, but in reality, like that's collecting all this chronal throughout the trains. But in reality, he was just trying to collect enough of it to like make a bomb. Well, and part of my question super- is, is like that is that why he was arrested? They wrote chronal addict, but was he already planning this right. at that point when he got arrested and put in the prison car? Yeah, he does sniff it at times, but not to the extent that that Yona does. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Yona got it, like in her hands, like really taking fumes. But yeah, like that's a good point where he may have been collecting it as a security guard trying to make a bomb to get out. Um, and, and here's where, where we get the first heavy part of dialogue, which again, is interesting because we hadn't had too much of it between Nam and Curtis. Um, but Nam explains to Curtis that he believes that the ice is melting outside because of the plane, because of the seven. Um, and that he believes that they should just blow up the train and, and get out. And Curtis doesn't believe that. Curtis believes like the only mode of survival is to get to Wilford and maintain control of the engine. Mm-hmm. Curtis here goes into a pretty deep monologue, and I typed it all out. If you guys want to bear with me for a minute, just because I think it's yeah. really, I think it's really great. Terrifying. So, yeah. Um, so Curtis is describing how they first entered the train. He says, after a month, we ate the week. You know what I hate about myself? I know what people taste like. I know that babies taste the best. Uh, there was a woman, she was hiding with her baby, and some men with knives came. They killed her, and they took her baby. And then an old man, no relation, just an old man, stepped forward, and he said, give me the knife. Everyone thought he'd kill the baby himself, but he took the knife and cut his arm off. And he said, eat this if you're so hungry. Eat this, just leave the baby. I had never seen anything like that, and the men put down their knives. You probably guess who that whole old man is. That baby was Edgar, and I was the man with the knife. He doesn't reference that it's actually Gilliam or say it outright, but he does make reference to it there. Yeah. And to round out, he says, I killed Edgar's mother. And then one by one, other people in the tail section started cutting off arms and legs and offering them. It was like a miracle, and I wanted to. I tried. A month later, Wilford's soldier brought the protein blocks, and we've been eating that shit ever since. 18 years I've hated Wilford. 18 years I've waited for this moment. And now I'm here. Open the gate, please. Yeah, yeah brutal stuff. Like, you would not even think that anything like that was coming like jim you mentioned earlier that you could tell that curtis had some sort of past that kind of haunted him um Mm -hmm. but up until this point you know we've known him as like somewhat just the leader we would have never thought that like he would have you know been driven to this sort of insanity you know back then and it's it's pretty haunting to hear him actually say the things he says um and kind of interesting to see where his inspiration from gilliam comes from or you know we assume that that was the old man um but it kind of really like corrected him and put him on the right path even though that path is extremely difficult and you have to eat shitty protein bars for the next 18 years but it's probably better than eating babies so yeah yeah, right yeah and super super intense and up till this point I had thought that Gilliam just had no limbs because of how we saw Andrew being punished, right? For With sure. his arm yeah. outside the water. Yeah. So I was like, oh, like these people don't have arms and limbs because like they've been punished by the guards and by the elites. Well, after this, it like came full circle. I was like, these people don't have arms and limbs because they were literally cutting them off for each other to eat. Like that's super like 
super powerful. Um, that is yeah. beyond dark. Yeah, right, right. Which, again, Bong Joon-ho just relish. Seriously. <laughs> Love it. Um, and, and so after Chris pleads that last time for for Nam to open the door, Nam actually doesn't. He sticks the chrono on the the almost looks like an escape door, but it's not. It's almost like a fortified like escape door to the outside. He's about to light it, and Wilford's door actually opens itself. And Claude, the gal in the yellow coat, um just literally steps out and shoots Nam like immediately. And so, and she states that uh, Wilfred actually wants to talk to Curtis alone and invites Curtis in. And this is kind of our second like part of heavy dialogue between Wilfred and Curtis. And uh, again, Wilfred speaks and Ed Harris does it so well, kind of like in the Truman show that he just speaks above Curtis. Yeah. Like he's greater good for these people on the train all of this about balance, um, about this, like, he even says the comment, we're all stuck in this, uh, stuck on this damn train and everyone has their place. He makes a couple comments about, like, almost that Curtis is the lucky one. He's like, yeah, I'm stuck in here all by myself. Like, it's lonely. And Curtis is just like, dude, fuck yeah. you. Like, <laughs> right. We just, like, literally a minute ago, we just heard that Curtis was eating people and, like, Wilfred's like, oh, feel sorry for me. I've been in here alone. Like, and it's noisy. <laughs> That's what he said. Yeah. Um, and and here is where we kind of that Wilford reveals that this entire revolution uh, was part of a, a a basic plan that the train was being overpopulated, and not only he had this plan to reduce it by the seventy four percent, but Gilliam was also in on it. That Gilliam and Wilford had been working together basically the entire. The entire time they, they had been on the train because Gilliam knew what Wilford knew is that this train is our only mode of survival. And in order to survive, like severe sacrifices have to be met. And that's where like Curtis's mind gets kind of really blown, rightfully so, that uh, he, Gilliam and Wilford had been working together. Um, and in this, in this scene as well, Wilford offers... Or, or sheds the light that the revolt was never supposed to uh, extend after that that war car with all the axes and like the bloody massacre. It was supposed to end. Yet, what Wilford um, underestimated was Curtis's passion, like Curtis's drive to keep moving forward. And that's where he devised this plan that Curtis was now worthy enough to run the train and take over Wilford's position as like the conductor. Cause Ed Harris is, they make Ed Harris was old at the time in 2013, but they definitely like made him look older yeah. and like a little more decrepit. Um, so like Wilford saying like, you're, you're the one that you've been from the, you've been from the back of the train to the front of the train. You've been the only one that's been through every single car. Like you're worthy to run this show now. Um, and it's at this time that Wilford shows Curtis the engine itself. And it's super futuristic, which is, again, visually, it's kind of just stunning, right? You, we've made this full transformation of, like, dark, crappy tail end to, like, over time into the future, into this futuristic engine. Um, and it's kind of powerful. Wilford leaves Curtis there just to enjoy the peace and quiet and the silence. And, like, Curtis just breaks down crying naturally. Well 
and one thing did you hear the heartbeat like that they piped in or played over that mm-hmm. were we meant mm-hmm. to believe that the train has a heartbeat or is that curtis for the first time in 17 or 18 years being alone and hearing his own heartbeat i, I was yeah, confused as point. to which it was yeah. right and either one would make sense i would think because right. yeah because this... if it's Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, man. Well, no, I was just going to say because this train or this engine specifically has been built up, you know, as this, you know, almighty being almost in its own as like the thing that's carrying us, you know, keeping us alive. Um, So it would make sense that they would kind of play that role. But but I I didn't even think about that. I do like, you know, Curtis's own realization, too, that might have what broke him down eventually. Mm hmm. Because everyone knows that sometimes you just need alone time and you couldn't, I couldn't imagine living with, call it another 200 people in the tail section being shoulder to shoulder with them for 18 years. That's impossible to imagine. Right. Yeah. That's super good. (laughs) (laughs) good. Uh, Yeah, this is like, even though it's full of dialogue, I love this end scene because again, you're really you've been with curtis this entire time through this this journey and and you're just kind of sharing all the same emotions he's having as well like one question do you think when um gilliam told him to cut his tongue out it was to kind of save his own skin and he wouldn't tell curtis that he was in on it as well yeah probably yeah yeah i i I think like gilliam gilliam's motivation for curtis was kind of it evolved as as Curtis like evolved too, right? Like, I'm sure at some point Gilliam like Gilliam knows that Curtis is the better man of of Wilford and can almost do it better, right? But at the same time, uh, I, I do think it was a little safe face, right? Like, don't let him speak, don't let him swindle you. Like, get to the tr- get to the front, take take over the engine, and don't care too much what Wilford says right. to you, type of deal. Right. So. Um, so in this moment where Curtis is crying, we kind of have a shift back, uh, and Jim alluded to this earlier that Franco rises up, pulls the knife out of his, out of his back or whatever, out of his side and walks forward into like up forward through the trains and Yona actually becomes coherent again. She kind of pops up from her of sniffing Kronal and she sees that Nam's been shot. So he's, she's kind of tending to him. And then I didn't understand this either. For some reason, like all the rave car people like came to the front as well. Yeah, and it's not explained why. The no, only thing uh, it's not explained well or why. And yeah. This would be kind of I don't know if this is really what it was, but like, are they kind of pissed that they were just slipping through, stealing all their chrono, and they're like trying to look for those two? <laughs> like, otherwise, I don't know really why if they're having yeah. their own little sort of like uprising, you know, Straight with the up doors. Curiosity. Yeah, I mean, with the doors finally open to like the the first car, right. you know. I don't know. That's kind of it was either right. I was just like torn between like, you know, they're either just pissed off that their drugs were stolen, or like yes, like the doors are finally open to like the head of the train. Like, what's going on? You know, I don't know. Right. Either one. Yeah, I, uh, the motivation for these rave car passengers, I didn't understand. And that's what was, like, super critical. The Like, I understand they have to raise the stakes in terms of a time mechanic. Like, oh, yeah, well, you only have a certain amount of time because you have this angry mob coming from behind you trying to, like, kill you. But at the same time, like, their motivation 
is she, like I don't even know what it is. I like we can speculate, I guess, but it's clearly not shown. It's just for some reason they're trying to get to the front. Right. Um. So like Yona kind of sees that Wilfred's trying to put the you know be a silky oil snailsman here and to Curtis, and uh, Yona like runs up to the engine uh, to I think like either harm Wilford or she runs to Wilford first, but Curtis actually stops her. And at this point, I'm like, is Curtis actually going to like take Wilford's offer here and like run the train? Cause I think at this point he seems convinced that Wilford's right. Um, w- which again, just a super shift from, from Curtis's character. And in this point, like Yona, she steps down off of the engine floor, like off of the engine platform. I don't know platform down back to like where Wolford and uh, Curtis had been speaking and she lifts up the floor and and underneath you see who I believe is Timmy working underneath the floor on the uh, Snowpiercer engine. Yeah. He's like reaching into a tube, scooping out like wasted grease and oil, dumping it beneath him somehow and then reaching in to grab some more. It's, a constant right. motion, which you've actually seen uh, mirrored a little bit. Mason did it or demonstrated it multiple times in some form of salute. Yes. Um, right. Which, not to jump too far ahead, but do we think that at one point, she's way too old, but like, do we think that she was down in there at some point having to do that? Which is why she kind of adopted it as a salute. No idea. Or right. why, why is she no doing idea. that? Yeah, Mason's an interesting character, and like her motivation, like I don't know her connection to Wilford like prior to this, obviously mm-hmm. either. It's just meant to be as like again a worshiper of Wilford, but um, yeah, that's a good point to make. She probably is a little too old to be like a, a child, right? Even at seventeen, yeah, because she would only have been she seventeen or eighteen. Or they said they yeah. aim for the size of a five-year-old child. So at most right, she could have been right. 22 or 23, which she's much older than that, clearly. Right. Right. So Curtis is actually pretty upset that he sees that the children are being used uh, basically as free labor, right? To physically control, like make this engine go. Um, Wilford tries to sweet talk himself and explain that the children are necessary because certain parts of the engine have failed over the past 17 years and they physically need children uh, to work in the tight spaces to conti- for the train to continue to operate. Okay. Um, and at this point, when I first watched the movie, I'm just like, why, why does Wilford even care about like these talent patches? Like just get rid of them. Like they don't need to exist for the sake of, of the train will come to find out they actually do need to exist because they're a, a heavy supply of young children that Wilfred can then use to exploit. Right. It's like a true, like necro capitalistic mm. <laughs> comes full circle here where the, like the, the tail enders are physically needed to operate this train. So the elites can like maintain their life, their status. Right. So, 
Um, other than that, like the tail enders have no other purpose up to this point of why they exist on this train until like we find out that their children are the be- the ones that are being shoved into this engine. Well, and this is where the politics of the movie are really on its sleeve. It is right. the elites leaning on the poor people for labor in jobs that they don't want to do themselves to be rewarded right. with, in essence, nothing. Um, and it right. makes a more subtle statement about how uh, the poor or working class don't have access to as good of education related to, um, say, birth control methods and like uh, that right. sort of stuff that really is kind of an underlying theme that they don't talk about other than here and about how that's a difference between right. classes. Yeah. Right. So my, one of my favorite parts of the movie, Curtis just beats the crap out of over. <laughs> <laughs> Pummels a couple of times because he's, he, he has this attachment to Timmy and obviously Tanya who has died uh, in this, in this revolution. And I think that's like what tips him the scale. So I think, Again, when he stopped Yona from like pursuing Wilford, there was a second that I was like, he is actually gonna like take Wilford's offer. But like after he found out that the kids were the reason for the train to be operating, he like obviously lost his shit, rightfully so. Yeah. Um, so this is like a super powerful scene where um Curtis lifts the door again from the floor and they're trying to save Timmy. There's this like rotating gear right beneath the floor, so like you you just can't physically crawl out without being torn up to shreds. Um, so in an act of sacrifice, Curtis like sticks his arm down into the floor to stop the gear, so Timmy can crawl out. And again, like in his discussion with Nam about how he was on the train and and how Gilliam had cut off his arm, Curtis uh, like reiterated that he tried to cut off his. On his own arm at one point and couldn't do it and we kind of saw the scars on his arm from that and so i think this was like him coming full circle that he can now sacrifice his own limbs to save others type of deal um i thought that was like a good character arc for curtis that that he like again just shows here by saving timmy um so this is this actually moves pretty quick um so once, once Timmy's out, um, Curtis actually tells Yona to like light up the chrono and blow up the door. Um, and all at this time, Nam is trying to fight off uh, these like ravers from getting up to the front of the car too. Like this has happened like pretty quick. Curtis actually breaks his own arm off. Yona lights the chrono. Um, Curtis and Nam effectively like wrap themselves around Yona and Timmy. And the like, the chrono explodes. The train blows up and creates an avalanche on this mountainside and like derails the entire train. It's like massive uh, wreckage, right? <clears throat> Somehow, Curtis and Nam, like sheltering Yona and Timmy with their bodies, saved them. Um, and there, you kind of see the remnants of the train. It's kind of upside down, and it appears that Yona and Timmy are the only survivors. They actually both walk out of the train onto the snow and surprise, surprise, like they don't instantly freeze. Um, and as they walk up the hillside, they actually see a polar bear walking around, kind of an imagery showing that the earth must be thawing and temperature must be rising. 
and like there's actual like living organisms outside in the snow and, and then the movie fades to black truly you know like a very powerful ending but also very like dark i mean light in a sense that there is life outside of the train but if these really are the only two survivors you know is you know unless right. we're supposed to think that maybe some other humans made it through when we were led to believe that everybody had died you know in the in the mm-hmm. freeze but again i guess it's kind of a open-ended ending where you have to kind of decide you know where you want to go yourself which which i kind of like most of the time like i thought this ending was very right. good and like it just goes to show you how powerful corruption and like you know propaganda can be used to kind of get people to do what you want them right. to do yeah, yeah. I, th- I, th- I think what i like most about this ending is throughout this entire movie elites like mason the teacher wilford everyone says there's you're stuck on this train and and what is that really saying like you're stuck in this class struggle right the elites actually almost don't want there to be life outside of the train because that would mean they they almost lose their status in their life on this train right like say say if it was discovered that the earth was thawed and like there's no use for snow piercing where they would actually have to like survive on their own in a sense right right they 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 torn out of this train out of this elite status so like their motivation to maintain order in this structure is only to keep that status and and so i don't want to say oh wilford knew that the earth was thawing but i don't think they they didn't want to know they just they just wanted this train to perpetually move and for them to stay in this current state this current status and any radical idea of trying to live in the outside world was going to be snuffed because they're going to use like this the cold to their advantage right and one thing when it comes down to like uh this entire class system here is one of the messages i kind of get out of the film is that the only way for the lowest class to like make it up to the top, the only result is to either completely topple the system or to replace the people at the top, creating a new class system and that there's no mm-hmm. in between. And also you can kind of read the avalanche from the explosion as like trying to topple this system results in mass casualties to everyone at all levels. Right. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it it's a more artistic read on it right than what it's coming out to say but i i do kind of like that symbolism i thought it was interesting yeah. to see yeah right sure. so do we want to get oh yeah, like, go ahead oh yeah i was gonna like just to piggyback on that point of just what capitalist realism like, capitalist realism is is we're so cap- capitalism is so part of our culture that we can't even imagine not living in a in in capitalism right like the same sense that these people are living on this train like it seems like a crazy idea to try to live outside of that train right the only the only way to like break down that structure to jim's point is is to literally just in this case of the movie is to like blow it off the tracks right yeah so for sure super good so do we want to get into scores Mm -hmm. do it why don't you start us jimmy why don't you start us jimmy can go first okay i will go first (laughs) i am gonna give this movie a seven it's really good it has some cool messages. Um, 
we talked about most of the main issues I had with it and why like some of the things just either don't make sense or just feel out of place or honestly, and at some points, pun intended, derail the movie just a little bit. Like the whole fish yeah. thing was absolutely baffling. Um, I, I don't know if there's some sort of symbolism that I don't know about. Um, but for that reason, I give it a seven. Very rewatchable, very, how do I say this? It's not enjoyable. Um, <laughs> But it, it it's very interesting. Thought, thought provoking. Yeah, thought provoking yeah, thought is a good way to put right? it. <laughs> yeah. Anthony, well, what right. do you got? Sure. Um, I'm kind of fell right on where you were, Jim. I was I was going to give it a seven. Um, falls under like I kind of described earlier when I first found this movie, kind of like that hidden gem um, on Netflix sort of thing. One that I hadn't really heard of too much when it came out, and obviously it caught a lot of, uh, it like really came on through streaming services, um, and it really just opened me up to Bong Joon Ho as as a whole and a lot of his other works, which honestly struck me to seek out um, Parasite, his newest film, um, which I absolutely loved. Uh, yeah, I mean we talked. Well, I don't want to drag on too long. We talked about most of it. A lot of the stuff is very cool, like. The way things were shot, the writing, I think, is fantastic. You know, and there's certain things that you question, you know, which characters or why they do sort of things or what kind of abilities they have. Um, But like like we said, too, you can look past most of that because this is a pretty different movie than than we're used to really seeing. And I I really enjoyed it, probably watching it now for like the third time. So I'm glad I gave it a seven. Yeah, I I actually am going to give it a seven, too, even though... If you would have asked me a week ago, I probably would have gave it a nine. But to Jim's point, I think there's just enough little things, and obviously on ten still good score, but enough little things that add up. Again, the fish, you know, uh, Yona's Yona's uh, ability, and even like the artists, right? That I was kind of enough of those add up. You know, you you throw in some poor CGI moments that just kind of throw you off as a viewer too. I think it just deserves a seven. The overall concept is awesome. I think the world building is great. And I think ending like it's thought provoking. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna give it a spin as well. Yeah, I, I none of these scores really surprise me, especially I, I I like you said, AJ, probably on my first watch through, which this is only my second time, I was very high on this movie. Like this is super thought provoking mm-hmm. and loved it. But on the rewatch you notice these things and they they can't yeah. be totally ignored. Right, right. Well, that pretty much sums up the 23rd episode of the We've Seen That podcast. I think we did decide we are doing Judas and the Black Messiah next week. Is that correct? Correct. We had announced that. The question is whether or not we want to decide on the fly here anything for episode 25. Um, I had called out we have Malcolm and Marie, which was uh, Zendaya, and you'll have to forgive me, I don't remember who the male lead was. That's a Netflix movie. Uh, Tom and Jerry will release the Friday before the pod for episode 25. <laughs> we might have to. We <laughs> might have to. I, I know for sure that I'm going to watch Tom and Jerry. It's just yeah. a question of whether or not we want to spend a whole review on that. So <laughs> do we want to decide on the fly? Phil Scott in uh, on the back end? Right. Uh, I don't know. I think I'm willing to wait a couple days here. We'll kind of see what happens. Um, if anything else pops up, I kind of, I kind of, I'd, I'd, I would do the Tom and Jerry. 
I think let's let's just say we're gonna do Tom and Jerry because Judas okay. and the Black Messiah is gonna be a much more intense and like artful yes. film it seems and that's also what Malcolm and Marie is so right change up the theme a little bit we'll switch it up perfect so yeah so tw- episode 24 will be Judas and the Black Messiah and then followed by 25 will be the new <laughs> live action Tom and Jerry movie I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about um on that but uh no appreciate it appreciate it aj for coming along this is a great movie i always like rewatching this too so i mean i had a lot of fun thanks for stepping up to the plate yeah. look at you, you just ran the yeah, show I, I appreciate the opportunity appreciate the opportunity <laughs> and i hope hope to be back you know, maybe when, when scoots back on the podcast we, oh, for you know, sure. for, but yeah. if not i will be tuning in every single week so keep up keep up the good fight keep thanks putting out good content thanks, bud. we appreciate it as always um Jim, where can the fine people and our 50,000 listeners find us on the web? If you want to interact with us, which we'd love it if more of you did, um, you can follow us on Twitter at weave underscore scene underscore that. You can like us on Facebook or email us at scene that podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's S-C-E-N-E, that podcast at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions of people who want to be sponsored or want to sponsor the pod, Email us. Let us know. Or, you know, as most businesses transacted now, tweet at us. 100%. Well, perfect. I had a lot of fun, boys. Thanks again, AJ, for filling in. Um, I guess that wraps up the 23rd episode of the We've Seen That podcast. I'm Anthony. I'm Jim. And roll credits.